Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Storybox, where I, your host, Jay Phantom, has the utmost privilege and honor to unbox the amazing stories of some incredible people from all walks of life and experiences. I'm delighted and grateful that you're here today. Now let's dive into the Storybox and hear more about our guest today. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Storybox Podcast. I'm thrilled to have you back for this very, very special episode. My friends, this is going to be one of the longest episodes I've ever done on the Storybox, but I guarantee each and every one of you are going to want to listen to every single second because this story I'm about to share with you with my guest today from the legendary magician John Dornboss is honestly inspirational, motivational, educational, and my goodness, as a pack a punch as well. There's some things in this interview that might be a bit hard to listen to uh, from content standpoint, and it might bring a tear to your, to your eye uh, from his just awe-inspiring story. And this is a man that spent 14 years in the NFL. He played 14 seasons making the Pro Bowl twice as a member of the Philadelphia Eagles in 2016. John competed on America's Got Talent, where he showcased his skills as a sleight-of-hand magician, making it to the finals and placing third overall in the competition amongst tens of thousands of competitors. He then put his talent on display as a guest on Ellen, who quickly became one of his biggest fans and advocates. John has appeared on Ellen's show in various capacities as well as the Today Show. He retired from the NFL after he was diagnosed with a life-threatening heart condition requiring emergency open-heart surgery. And the story behind that is honestly incredible and astounding um, how they were able to find uh, his heart condition. He's known for a great sense of humor and positive outlook on life, which is so true. John uses his skills as a magician and his incredible life story, which I guarantee you it is, to inspire audiences around the world. He wrote the best-selling book entitled Life is Magic that draws a roadmap for how to shut that self-doubting voice up by choosing happiness. So with all that being said, I don't want to continue on, but 
please, please, if you do get something out of this episode, share it around to all your friends and family. You can sub- subscribe now on Apple Podcasts and YouTube. We do have a YouTube channel, so I do want to announce that. You can watch this interview uh, in the flesh. Now, he does use some pictures, so I do recommend highly that you watch the full video over on YouTube. So all the links will be in the show notes below. If you do enjoy this episode, please do leave a five-star rating and review over on Apple Podcasts as well. Help spread amazing stories like this out to many more people. It takes 30 seconds and it goes a very, very long way. So with that being said, my friends, I'm going to shut up now and allow you guys to enjoy uh, this episode. So let's dive into the story box and hear John Dornboss's story. Yeah, this is Rockstar, baby. Hold on. <coughs> oh my God, excuse me. Hold on. <laughs> okay. Oh, geez. Woo, I feel so much better. So now we're ready to rock and roll, man. Dude, that, how'd you do that? <laughs> magic, baby. It's magic. Tell me the secret. Like, what's the secret to doing that? Like, <laughs> oh, you got a, a big esophagus, got to open up the chest cavity, get him down in there, and then just boom. Oh, I love it, man. Great start to the to the intro. I'm putting that in for sure. Seriously, Heck, yeah. man. I have one question that I love asking people to sort of start things off, and that is, what does success look like to you? You know, it's it's a great question, and and I, I love that you asked it. So years ago, uh, I was asked by this genius society to be the keynote for this big convention they had for a bunch of geniuses in Arizona. And I kid you not, my first response was, I think you got the wrong number. Like, I don't think I'm the guy you're looking for, right? Clearly, this is a joke. Uh, and then what they did is they sent me 100 questions. And they said, rate all your successes, right? Rate all your accolades and the things that you're most proud of. Mm. And I said, okay, 100. So your top 100 achievements, I think is what it was called. And I would say my first 50 had nothing to do with anything career, materialistic, had nothing to do with it. And I wasn't thinking about it. I was just listing. And number one, I wrote the word happy. Number two, I wrote the word proud of purpose. And number three, and I started to go down the things because money's going to come and go. There's a, there, there's a great little slogan. You know, you're going to make money. You're going to lose money. Uh, you'll spend money. You'll win money, right? But you're never going to be able to buy your time back. And so for me, success equals happy, whatever that is, because otherwise, what's the point? And uh, so to me, success is happy. So what are some of the things that actually make you happy in life? Man, you know, um, having clarity, uh, having focus, um, really living through and understanding the power of forgiveness, um, the ability to let go of bitterness, the ability to understand that people might not think the way I do, they might not act the way I do. And because of that, maybe taking a little bit more time to understand where they come from might help me understand why they act or do the things they do. And that's not about disagreeing with who they are or what they're doing. That has nothing to do with it. It's just taking a second to understand how these people that I'm dealing with feel. Mm. And maybe that helps the conversation. And then not only that, it helps me get patience, right? Yeah. And then it helps me maybe even change and realize maybe there's things about me I need to change to, uh, to accommodate the situation. So um, I, I think it's that. It's, it's having a sense of self. It's having a sense of awareness. It's having... Uh, being in, in touch with who I am on multiple different levels, whether it's emotionally, spiritually, whether it's physically, just being connected helps me connect to others. Mm, I, lo- I love that, man. Like it's, it's a great definition. Uh, I'm, I'm always curious about this idea, the difference between happiness and joy. So have you been able to think about that throughout your life? Like what's the difference? Yeah, I mean, well, 
no, uh, I actually never have, but boom, there's the question. Let's dive into it. Right. Um, to me, happiness is a decision, right? A lot of people think happiness is an emotion. It's not happiness is it's a decision. I think joy comes from happiness. I think you find joy in a lot of places. Um, I think people that are happy find a lot more joy than people that aren't. I think people that are happy find more joy in things that people that aren't happy find joy. Like it doesn't take me a lot to find joy, right? Mm -hmm. Joy's everywhere. Um, you know, I mean, if it, look, the number one would be my wife and my daughter. I mean, if, if you want to talk about true joy and just, um, you know, that, that's another thing, right. That, that you asked earlier, like being married to somebody, that's just awesome. Being married to somebody that lets me be me. Um, you know, one thing I'm, I'm so appreciative and I'm kind of going on a tangent, but, uh, my father-in-law, believe it or not, has actually taught me a lot about having a daughter. And now look, my daughter's only a little over a year old. Um, but my father-in-law accepts me for me and I can say what I want. I can tell whatever joke I want. I can just be me. And he loves me for that. Mm. And so I know that when my daughter starts dating, I'm, I'm you know, the classic, okay, we're going to buy a gun. I'll see you in jail. Right. <laughs> but there's going to be a point where she's like, dad, this is the one for me. Mm. And I'm going to do everything I can to have a relationship with my future son-in-law or daughter-in-law, whatever, whatever my wife decides or my daughter decides that gives acceptance. Like my father-in-law accepted me into their life, mm. which is pretty cool. That's beautiful, man. I'm always, it's like kind of like that bad boys scene. I don't know if you've seen it. Bad boys too. Like when Reggie, comes, <laughs> uh, uh, that was 30. Yeah, <laughs> we're in the car, locked and loaded, and, and it's going to be chitty chitty bang. <laughs> That's it. And this is uh, this is her now. Now this picture is a little old. Uh, I, I should have had a more recent one pulled up, but that's oh, that's my little girl in the back seat. And that to me is blue, man. They are, and she is so sweet, so smart. And now she's getting into everything, right? So now she's open. She here, here's a, dude. It, one is she's running, and two. She just learned how to open a door and like open the door, close it, turn the knob, open it, close it. So it's like, oh my gosh, like this is only one. We have just one, yeah. This it's oh. our first one. She's she's beautiful, yeah. man. Congratulations to you. Oh, are you ready for this? So so she's a year old now, but this was my uh oh, hold on. We're gonna edit that out. We gotta open that up. <laughs> so here we go. Uh yeah, so so this was a, an older picture too, but this was my wife when she was pregnant. Wow. And uh, we had that picture taken on the beach, and so you know, these are probably two of my favorite pictures is the picture of my wife on the beach pregnant. Stunning. And then that picture, yeah, that picture of my daughter, um, because they like pictures, they represent time. Right. And so there's a few pictures I have that like my daughter, I think forever in my, my eyes, my daughter's going to be that age right there when she was like six, seven months old, she yeah. could hold her head up you know, but, but she just wanted to like lay on daddy and now, now she's discovering the world. So now she's like, get out. I'm out. And da, 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 you know? So I think my daughter will forever be six months and my wife will forever be the beautiful woman that was pregnant with my daughter on the beach. I think when you take, when you capture something with an image, cause I'm also a filmmaker, whether it's a photo or it's a film, you're telling a story with that and, you, and it's like a memory. So that memory is encapsulated in your mind and you never forget it. And I think you can go back to it whenever you want. And that, that emotion still is quite raw from that time. I, I just love that. It, it's, it's timeless. It really is. It is. So I'm curious, how did you actually meet your wife? 
All right. So uh, I had been married. Um, I look, you know, we all marry someone and we think they're the one. And then we find out later that that person's not who we thought they were. And so, you know, when I found out I was getting divorced, uh, believe it or not, as happy as I thought the marriage was, I, we were just doing the motions, right? We, we weren't really connected. When I knew we were getting divorced that night, it was actually the best sleep I'd had in probably five years. And I realized that we just weren't meant to be. And so I was a year out of my divorce and I was looking for nobody. At the time I was flying my own plane. I was performing. I was playing in the NFL and like life's good. I got no responsibility. I got no kids. And I was kind of in my first marriage when I got divorced, I realized this, I'm proud of the husband I was. But more importantly, I said, if I ever get in a relationship again, I know what I will never give up about me ever again. Like these are certain things that I am not willing to compromise ever again that make me me. And these are some things that maybe I, that got lost in my, my first marriage. So it was a lot of self-reflection, self-discovery. And so, um, my buddy, uh, who, um, actually I think connected us with this podcast, which is great. So Tim Mooney, who is a a friend and somebody I work with. Yeah. So he said, Hey, I got this chick. You got to meet. And I'm like, okay, here we go. He's like, no, 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 no. I go, all right, tell me about her. Okay. She's a six foot blonde from Vegas. I go, oh, gosh, Tim, look, I'm married. The last thing I need is a six foot, you know what, from Vegas. Like, come on, dude. You know what I mean? Hey, I'll tell you what, if she wants to have a good time, let's do this. Tell her I'll meet up with her for a weekend. I probably won't call her back, but at least I'll be honest. And she knows going forward and whatever, dude, if it works out great, call me. If not, whatever. So she, he calls her and he says, Hey, Annalise, I got this guy you got to meet. And oh, here we go, Tim. I work in Vegas and she was an executive with MGM International. So she helped run 11 casinos. Very intelligent, very smart. She's like, Tim, it's hard to meet a guy here in Vegas. And what does he do? Well, his name's John. He plays in the NFL. Whoa, 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 whoa. I want nothing to do with this scumbag. Like, I don't, I'm good. Like, I don't want to deal with a professional athlete. I'm sure he's that guy and he's running around and just, you know. So neither one of, we already had like the image of one another, right? Mm. So finally, Tim gets us on a phone call and we get on this conference call and, and we talk and believe it or not, like I actually laughed. And for those that have been in relationships and then been out of relationships, I did a lot of fake laughing in my first marriage. I was actually laughing and I, and I noticed this. And for me to connect with a woman and to talk and to not just be like, <laughs> 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 But like to really laugh, like that was like really cool for me. And so we ended up talking for three months on the phone, three or four months on the phone, because I was in Philadelphia, she was in Vegas. And so finally I had some time off. I said, look, I'm flying to Vegas. I'm going to land. We're going to have dinner. And then I got to bounce. And she's like, okay. So what happens is about three, four months later, I flew to Vegas, landed, I had dinner, and then I had to fly out. And right before I was taken off, um, she said, hey, um, that was really cool. And I go, yeah, that was, that was really cool. And she goes, look, I don't really know what to say, but I think like the conversations we've been having, I think this would be a mistake if we didn't pursue this. And I was like, yeah, you know, I, I kind of believe me, I never in a million years wanted to be in a relationship after I got divorced, but I I think you're right. Hey, do you want to move in? And she goes, Oh yeah, right away. And then when I said that, I was like, (laughs) all right. Um, no, I I literally was like, well, do you just want to move in? And without hesitation, she goes, yeah, yeah. Wow. And I go, so what are we going to do? And she's like, I mean, whatever, dude, I can get a job in the casino business anytime. Like whatever I've, I've done it. I've been there, done that. I've, I've worked up the ladder. I've seen it all. Like I'll just quit. And I'm like, great. You don't need to work. I got time off. Let's go travel the world. And so she moved in 
And that was over five years ago. And I've never looked back. And so what's really cool is so Tim, the guy that hooked us up, right? He's just thinking this is going to be dinner and that's it. He's like, hey, so how'd it go? We're like, oh, yeah, it was pretty cool. You know, um, Annalise is great. Uh, she's moving in next week. And uh, he's like, <laughs> what? What? And hey, man, the rest is history. So we uh, uh, we dated a year. We were engaged a year. Uh, we got married on a beach in Mexico. And uh, that's the rest is history. It's an incredible story. I'm curious really cool. about how you kept that three-month communication over the phone alive. How did you do that? You know, um, we made each other laugh. Like, I'm telling you, a lot of people are like, well, that doesn't sound... It was a big deal. Like, I wanted to talk to her. And so that that one minute, hey, what's going on, led to like five minutes, led to 10 minutes, led to like literally falling asleep on FaceTime and then waking up five hours later and we're both still asleep on FaceTime. It just progressed. and then. Um, being around her, just hearing her voice, hearing her attitude, just being around her, I just felt better about myself. And I think she might've felt the same way. And so it wasn't forced. It wasn't hard and it was just cool. And here we are today. I love that. And, and for those young people that are listening to this, you got to take some advice from this man and what happened. Don't force relationships. That's the worst. Yeah. Thing don't force do. it. Just allow things to happen naturally organically that's the best way to have a relationship with someone and yeah i, I don't worry man I've, I've been in in relationships where i've forced it and it hasn't worked out well like there hasn't no. been like a friendship base before and it doesn't work out in your favor well time. that's well you, you just nailed it right there's a friendship mm. and and there's 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 got to be a friendship and there has to be something more than more than just a physical relationship. And one of the things I'm most thankful for, especially at look, social media and this and that, like most people that date, they, they meet, they hook up and then let's just see if this works out. Right. Where we actually like we're hanging out and, and talking for months mm. before we even met. Now, look, we obviously knew what one another looked like, but like, there was so much more when we met and are you ready for this? And I, I, this, this was legit. We agreed that we're not going to hook up first night. We meet. What's that going to happen? And so we actually pretty much stayed like really close to that. Like we didn't, you know, we, we didn't. And so really, really cool. And so uh, being around her, I, I wanted to be around her. I wanted to hang out. So I, I told you guys we got married on a beach in Mexico so this was us. Uh, we invited a few people. It was 80 of our closest friends. Um, we were barefoot. Uh, I didn't wear shoes all night, which was amazing. Um, and it was, it was the coolest thing. We had Tim, the, the guy that we met. So, all right. So we, we have our date in Vegas. I fly out and performing in Boston. I then fly back home. Annalise comes out and stays a few days with me. And so we kind of, besides Vegas, it's like our first day to hang out. Right. And uh, this was actually pretty cool. Prior to that, we had a phone call and she goes, what's like your perfect first date? And uh, now, okay, here we go. Here's what's going to happen. No matter what I say, you're just going to agree, right? Cause you're going to be a chick that just wants to make me happy. So you're gonna be like, Oh my gosh, that's perfect. That's exactly what I was thinking. Come on. Like, we know that's not, that's not the case. Here's the deal. Like uh, right now, let's just say it was like two 30, right? I go, okay. At two 34 hit send. Mm -hmm. We're both going to hang up. We're going to type out what our perfect first date is at two 34. We're going to send to each other. And we're going to read it. Okay. Then we'll call back. And then we're really going to see if we agree. Mm. I wrote, I want to go on a, I live by the beach. So we're going to take beach cruisers down the beach. I don't want any alcohol. Let's take a boat ride on a crappy boat and just hang out. Like, that's what I want to do. Like, I just want to hang out. 
and laugh and just really not be around people. I don't want to sit in a movie theater. I don't need to, I just want to hang out with you. And she wrote, let's take a walk on the beach, maybe get an ice cream cone, hang out and laugh. So we were literally on the same page. Um, and so after that date, we sent a video to the guy that introduced us. Now, meanwhile, uh, he just found out she's moving in. So he's like, whoa, he's like mind blown. Right. And then we said, Hey, when we get married, you're going to marry us on a beach in Mexico. And he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Right. Slow down. And sure enough. Uh, he married us on a beach in Mexico. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Really cool. That is a, an amazing story, man. And really cool. What's one thing that your wife has taught you about life and about yourself? Um, I think it was looking forward to craving and wanting to live for something bigger than yourself. Mm. Right. I, I think, I think it's, I think it's good to be selfish. I, I do some selfish has a very, negative connotations. Uh, you know, people think that being selfish is bad. Well, I, I disagree. I think being selfish is awesome. Um, because you can, you, you can incorporate that in, in all aspects of life. Look at you. Mm. You know, uh, we had a quick conversation before we went on the air and I said, how'd you get into this podcast and the motivation you have to want to share stories to try and make people's lives better. Well, then you're selfish. Mm. You, you literally took a chance and you left opportunity that had all the upside financially and, and materialistically, but you're like, I don't know if I'm getting fulfilled here. So what do you do is you be selfish to the things that you want, mm. but being selfish can also bring joy to a lot of people. Yeah. Like, so, so that's how I view being selfish. And, and sometimes you have to be selfish to discover who you are. And if yeah. you don't know who you are, how can you be anybody for anybody else? Mm. And so when I met my wife, it was like, man, I just, you know, probably for the first time, it was somebody I met that I wanted to be better for her mm. than I even wanted to be better for myself. And that was a cool feeling. I like how you said being selfish to you, because then when you are selfish to you, then you know who you are. So then you can be selfless to others. That's it. It's, it's, it's an amazing yeah. thing, isn't it? Like it just follows through. Yeah. Uh, and you don't even realize it sometimes. Like you just hang on a minute. I need to be, I need to do this for me because if I don't, then I won't be able to do something else for someone later on. Like it, well, because you're, you're, you're like a, a boat drifting. Yeah. You're just there's no going port to port and there's no direction. There's no vision. There's no purpose because mm. you don't even know who you are. Yeah. So it's a powerful thing. You, you got no compass and mm. it, people like in order to get that compass, you need to, um, find it for yourself. It's true. You need to ask the tough questions. You it's need so to true. Ask, ask people questions and not be afraid of it. And I like how you, I like how you touched on that, and I'm curious about building trust with because you played in the NFL for 14 seasons. You got to trust your teammates. You got to, now you also got to trust your wife as well. Relationships it is very is it hard to trust people, or how do you go about building trust in relationships? Um. Wow. Um. I, I, I go into a relationship trusting. Um, I, I think I'd rather love and be loved and lost than never loved at all. Mm. You know, I, I believe that people are good. Um, I think that people are both good and bad. If, if they're in the wrong situation, then they might not act the way they act when they're in the right situation. So 
it's hard to judge people based on previous relationships that they were in. Um, you know, my, my first marriage, um, I was proud of the husband I was. I don't know if, um, I, you know, my ex, I don't know if she would say the same thing. She probably would, but whatever, she made decisions that I probably wouldn't have. Um, and so when I went into my new relationship, of course, there's hesitation. But it goes back to what we said earlier. And that is, I can't, I can't assume that Annalise is going to act the way I did or the way my ex did. I got to evaluate her for her. And I can't make assumptions, assumptions on who she is. And nor can I put previous experiences in her shoes. Mm. So instead, let's just dive in and see where this goes. And if it's the right situation, then neither one of us are going to want to make bad decisions. In fact, we're both going to want to be there for each other. And we're both going to want to make each other better. And I'm going to want to make your life as happy and rich in every aspect of the beauty of life I possibly can. And when I met my wife, it was really easy. Like I, you know, I mean, no offense to women out there, but every woman I see, sorry, you're not my wife. Like I don't see you in the same light. And I hope that I have that feeling forever because it's really cool to meet a smoke show comes up after a show and she's like, Oh my gosh. And you're just like, Holy cow. But you're just like, yeah, it's really nice to meet you. Thanks. Cause you're not, you're not my wife and yeah. nor, nor, nor do you have this place in my heart that only my wife sits. And so, um, you know, even with social media and all that, it's not hard to be faithful. It's not hard to be trusting. It's, it's not hard. It's hard if you make it hard on yourself, but you know, to go through life and not have skeletons to be in a relationship and not have skeletons in your closet. I mean, it, it just makes it so much easier, but with that, there comes a sense of accountability. There comes a sense of pride. You know, one of my favorite coaches uh, was a guy named Coach A. Uh, mm-hmm. Coach A coached me in junior college, and uh, he passed away. And I'll never forget. He he gave us a uh, he gave a speech to our team. Our team was terrible. We were zero and thirty, uh, and then we lost another ten. So we lost forty games in a row this junior college, right? But he asked us. He goes, "Hey, everybody, come in." And so there's a drill you do in football, and uh, I'm just going to show you. Well, it, it might not show up, but there's a football field, right? And there's a, there's sidelines. And what you do is you run from one sideline to the other. Oh, we'll do it with the palm tree. Yeah. You run from this palm tree to this one. You touch the palm tree and then you run back, right? So what happened is our team was running and a lot of guys were coming just shy of the line and then they'd run back. Mm-hmm. So he calls us up and he says, hey, do you guys want to know why we're 0-30, 0-40? Because you don't, you don't take care of the little things. I tell you to touch the line. You don't. You come up this shy. You come up just short. Which if you think about it, how many games have we come up just short because you're creating habits that coming up that much, that, that short is good enough. When I was learning how to fly, uh, my flight instructor, Reed McConville, it was unbelievable. He goes, hey, hold, hold 3,000 feet. So I go up, I level out and I say, okay, I'm holding 3,000 feet. He looks over at the altimeter. He's like, no, you're not. You're holding 3,010. Okay, boom. All right, I'm holding 3,000 feet. No, you're not. You're at 2,995. Oh. Okay, so, so we land. He says, John, look, you're a pro athlete. You've done a lot of great things. But I'm going to tell you right now, if you settle for the five or 10 feet up there, you're going to settle for it down here. Ooh. So in every aspect of your life, if you want to hold 3,000 feet, hold 3,000 feet. And don't, don't, don't let it be good enough to be just shy. Don't let it be good enough to be close but not get there. And I literally was just like, oh. <laughs> right? So then, Coach a, so then Coach A asked a question. He says, why do we have the names on the back of our jersey? I got that. It's easy. There's too many people out here, right? So what you're going to do is you're going to walk behind me. 
You're going to glimpse my last name. You're going to walk in front of me. Then when you need me, you're going to say, hey, Dornboss, get over here. I'll run over there. I, I think you know me now because you know my name. And I'm going to try harder. Mm-hmm. And man, I'll never forget. He goes, John, that's the stupidest answer I've ever heard. Sit down. <laughs> he goes, he goes, <laughs> he goes, this is why I think this is, this is what I think. Because one day, some of you might play football on TV. You might even play in a Super Bowl in front of hundreds of millions of people. And what's going to happen? There's going to be a moment in the game where you get hit and it was a bad call. And you know it was a late hit. You know it was a bad call. And you're face down in the grass. And guess what? The camera's going to come in and they're just going to see that name right there. Now, when you stand up, there it is. See, the moment that every one of us is face down, the moment that every one of us gets a late hit, the moment that life doesn't go our way, that's what all of us can relate to. Doesn't matter your money, your religion, your race, doesn't matter where you're from, who you are. None of that matters. That moment right there where we're drowning and we just need a moment to tread water. We just need a moment to catch our breath. That's the moment that all of us will relate to forever throughout life. But then we stand up and Mm -hmm. now there's a decision to be made. That decision, that decision is what forever separates people right there. Am I going to live in vision? Am I going to live in circumstance? So here it is. You stand up. You point fingers, you blame everybody else. You start yelling at the official, you take your helmet off and you throw it. Well, guess what? When the camera zooms in and sees that name, that's what you are. You're a complainer. Mm-hmm. That's what you are. That's who you are. But now the decision comes where you stand up, you hold your head up and you realize it didn't go your way, but instead you rally your teammates, you huddle up. And in 30 seconds, you come out with a better situation, a better plan and a better play to take the line to come out and completely dominate. And now you're going in a, and then guess what? You've already forgotten about the, the situation, right? Don't let the moment be bigger than the situation. Stand up and make the decision to live in vision. And then when the camera zooms in and they see that name, guess what? You're a teammate that your team would hate to lose, but you're a teammate that every opponent fears. Mm-hmm. That right there, you'll win in life more than you lose. So I try and take that in every aspect of my life. Now, look, we're not perfect, right? sometimes I get cut off on the highway and I get road rage and I honk and then I, you know, it all happens. Right. Yeah. But we take, we, we, we take a second to realize, be a teammate in this world that this world and this team would hate to lose and every opponent fears mm-hmm. and take that into your relationship and be that person for your significant other, be that person for your kids. Now I have a daughter. Are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. A buddy of mine, man, a buddy of mine hit me right here, right in the chest. I had my daughter. Right. And I, I'm, this literally blew my mind. He goes, John, yeah. God, your daughter's going to date pretty soon. Hey, you better watch your mouth. Okay. <laughs> she's just born. Okay, you better watch your mouth. And he goes, now nah, she's going to date pretty soon. Hey, who do you want her to date? I'm like, I'm not even thinking about her dating. Well, I know. He looked at me and he said, if you're not the man that you would want your daughter to date, then you better change the man you are. And I was like, whoa. And then I left. And then, and then we, we drove out from the hospital. My wife's sitting in the front seat, my daughter, first time in a car seat. And I was like, that was deep, right? My daughter is looking how I treat my wife from the moment she was born. My tone, my gestures, everything about what I do to my wife is what my daughter is going to come to expect as normal. Mm. And now all of a sudden, if she goes on a date and daddy doesn't open the car door for mommy, well, when that guy doesn't open the door for her, that woman doesn't open the door for her. Well, guess what? That's normal. Mm. But what if daddy opens the door for mommy? What if daddy grabs all the groceries? Mm. What if daddy just takes an extra second to help her? Well, now when my daughter goes on a date and that individual doesn't do that, it's not good enough. So uh, advice to, to dads that have little girls, if you're not the man that you want your daughter to date, then you better change the man that you are. 
because she's going to end up seeing you as a standard. And if your standard isn't higher for yourself than anybody else has for you, then you better reevaluate. And guess what? When they say hold 3,000 feet, mm. you better hold 3,000 feet. Hold it. That is so powerful, man. I'm glad you went there. I'm glad you, you shared that because I needed to hear it again. And I'm sure a lot of people needed to hear it because I've been speaking to people about manhood. What does it mean to be a real man in mm-hmm. today's society? And I think we've got a lot of boys that know how to follow very well, but they don't know how to lead. And that still makes them a boy. It doesn't make them a man. And I think there needs to be this line, and you said it perfectly, that you, you make the decision. And there's something that I want to share uh, with everyone out there. I call it the CAP method. So it's basically C stands for choice, A stands for acceptance, and P stands for persistence. And there's another saying that goes along with, with P, which is be persistent to remain consistent are the things that you, that you want. And if you want to be a man, then you've got to, first of all, understand that it's a choice to be a man. You don't have to accept that you're, gonna, you're not going to be a boy forever. You don't, don't accept that. That's your choice to accept that you're going to be a boy for as long as you choose to be. And if you are willing to become a man, make the choice, accept the fact that you are going to be a man one day and be persistent at working at the things that you want to emulate as being a man and put a cap on all the past things. Just don't do it again, go forward. And I think that's what is lost in today's society. And I think you, you hit the nail right on the head um, with, with that analogy of that 3000 feet, you know, we, we, we sort of, we get just there, but not all the way there. And we can't hold it because of fear. There's so many other obstacles in our way. Like it only takes one thing for us to just stop and crumble. And it's like, no, hold 3000 feet. Well, I, I think too, is it's not just the fear of succeeding, right? Mm. It's, I think there's a lot of people that think getting that close is getting there. Yeah. No, you ain't there. You're that close, You're not but there. you ain't there. Mm. But if in your mind you think you made it, you know, it's, it's even like, you know, two things. This, this bothers me more than anything, right? Mm. You hire a contractor, they come to your house, they're going to do some work. But then all of a sudden they do a great job, but then they don't finish. Like mm. the little details, right? You ask them to paint and then there's, there's paint on your hardware and that like, it's like, they think they're done. Mm. And it's like, man, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe I pay attention to the details more than others. You know, um, you know, even from my early childhood, I never wanted to be babysat. Now th- think about this concept right here. Uh, when I was 13, 14 years old, I kind of became, when it really, when I was 12, I kind of became the man of the house. Right. And I, um, I had to do a lot of things for myself and, uh, I never like, there's nothing more embarrassing than being a grown man that has to be babysat. You know, and, and when I played in the NFL uh, night before a game team stays in a hotel home and away games. And at 11 o'clock, they would do a bed check. They would walk in your room and they would open the room to make sure that you're in bed. Right. Dude, I went off. I went off. I went to the front. I, dude, I, I went off on everybody. I said, look, I'm a, I'm a grown ass man. Excuse my language. Do not come into my room at 11 o'clock and wake me up. If I tell you I'm going to be there, I'm going to be there. Stop babysitting me. Stop it. You want a man? Treat me like a man. You want a boy? Treat me like a boy. Mm. Well, you know, some guys sneak out. Well, then deal with those guys. Yeah. If you got to ba- if you got to babysit those guys, that's their problem. But you decided to have these people on the team. Mm. Treat me like a man. You're going to get a man. 
And so, the, 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 and it, but then it comes back to accountability. It comes back to having a higher standard for yourself than anybody else has for you. And, and it's funny because it doesn't matter what question you ask. It all goes back to the same, to the same root, the same core value. You know, there's things I tell myself in any situation. I tell myself, so what, now what? I, I, you know, I, I tell myself, you know, don't, don't listen to yourself, talk to yourself. Now, all these things come back to having a high standard, right? It, it comes back to wanting more for myself and my family than anybody else will ever want for me. If I'm in a situation that's really, really bad, I just, I literally tell myself, so what, now what? Yeah. Now, when I say that, that is not me saying I agree with this situation. That is not me saying, oh my gosh, I'm glad I'm here. That is not me saying, um, you know, of all the, the, the perfect places I could be, this is it. So what, now what? When I tell myself that, something happens in my brain. And all of a sudden, the resiliency kicks in. All of a sudden, I stand up. All of a sudden, I'm, I'm, I'm left with the decision. Do I live in vision? Do I live in circumstance? There it is, right? So what, now what to me basically means this is my reality. Whether I like it or not, this is my reality. So what? Now what? Now who are you going to be? Now what are you going to do? Now what decision are you going to make? Because what happened? You're not the only one it's happened to. So don't be a victim. Don't make yourself a victim. Instead, realize that you're not alone. Realize that, that all the bad things that happen in life, even if it's just, even if you feel like life is just piling up on top of you, it's life. And life doesn't care what your plan is. But now find resiliency. You find resiliency. You stand up. You make a decision in that moment. The decision is what separates us to either live in vision or live in circumstance. If you pick vision, then guess what's right there at the top? It's a thing called happiness. You get to happiness and now you find joy. And then you know what you can do in all the negative things that happen in this world? You can sit back and realize that there is motivation in defeat. There is motivation in failure. There is no such thing as failure, right? People use the term failure, but all it is is just building character building resiliency to keep coming back, keep coming back. Mm. That's the key to life right there. Mm. I love that, man. Really do love it. It's, I love the failure aspect of there's people that say there's no such thing as failure. There's only learning. And then I always say that if we see it as failure, you got to understand that in failure, you learn life's most valuable lesson, which is humility. It's powerful. It's like no one wants to be around someone that is cocky, hot-headed, thinks that they know it all. No one wants to be an, around a know-it-all because you can't relate. You can't speak to a know-it-all. You can't have deep and meaningful conversations. And there's just well, that. Well, hold on, hold on, hold on. I'm going to stop you right there. You know why? Because mm. when you're a man, it's hard to relate to a boy. That's it. That's the difference. Perfect. When you're a man and all of a sudden you got to put your big boy shoes on, Mm. it's hard to go to bat with a boy. Yep. That's the difference. And as a man, I'm okay saying I'm wrong. Mm. I'm okay saying my bad. Mm. You know, being in the NFL taught me how to be a man. It taught me about process. It taught me about discipline. It taught me about dealing with pressure. It taught me about how important my decisions are to other people's livelihood. And Mm. you know what else it taught me? That guess what? I can get ripped into in front of an entire organization. I can get ripped on by ESPN and all the sports writers. I could be on the front page of whatever and just get ripped on. But that doesn't define who I am. Uh-huh. It's the ability to take motivation from defeat to realize that life is just a bunch of constructive criticism. You can say whatever you want. If you hate me and you want to just sit there and rip into me, here's the decision. Goes back to Coach A. I'm face down right now. Mm-hmm. Vision, circumstance. 
So by you ripping into me, I can either let that affect my confidence, let that affect who I am, let it affect everything. Or I can say, you know what? Nah, I don't agree with that. Nah, you don't know what you're talking about there, but that right there, mm, that hit my core. Like what you just said, and I'm just reading this, just saying this to myself, what you just said, there might be some truth to that. So now I go home and I start reflecting. And now guess what? This person exposed a weakness in me. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for exposing a weakness in me. Now I'm going to go fix it. And now I'm going to get it right. And now guess what? Next time you want to rip on me, you're going to have to find something else to say because what you said was a weakness is now a strength. Mm, powerful. The moment we allow ego and pride to get in the way, then we've literally automatically become a boy again. It's you're not a man. A man has a choice. A man knows yep. that he can choose to accept this, accept what he needs to learn, accept that he's, yeah. he's made a mistake. And, well, and I, think, I think there's a lot of people that think admitting you're wrong or showing weakness means you're not a man. Yeah. No, no. Going down with a sinking ship means you're an idiot. Yes. <laughs> you're an idiot. Yeah. You know, fixing the problem. Now you're a man. Mm. I love that, man. John, how did you grow up? Like, what was your childhood like? And we'll, we'll go from there. You know, I was, I was super fortunate as a kid. I had two parents that loved me. Um, you know, my dad was a, a salesman with Microsoft in the computer software industry. So as far as I was concerned, look, we had a nice house. Um, everything was taken care of. In fact, uh, this, let me show you. I don't know if I showed you guys this, but this is, oh, hold oh, on, yeah. we'll edit that out. So um, <clears throat> this right here, this was, this, was the, uh, this was the house that we grew up in in, in Woodenville, Washington. And so, um, uh, you know, look, I, I was raised in an upper middle class family and my dad was, was my hero. I wanted to be just like him. And uh, he was the president of Little League. We played catch every day. Uh, and I was, <clears throat> you know, I think a lot of little kids want to grow up to be like their parents or, or at least you hope so. Right. Obviously not everybody's in that situation. Uh, my mom, my mom was a total rock star and she volunteered in a library uh, at our elementary school. And so, um, you know, I saw my mom every day. She was a stay at home mom and the whole community loved her. All my friends loved her. And, and I think because a lot of people like my mom that helped me fit in socially because, you know, if they liked her, they liked me. Um, mm -hmm. I really struggled in reading comprehension. Like I really struggled learning as a kid. So I'm not going to say I, I had a learning disability, but it was very hard for me to read and comprehend. So my mom started a, a, a reading program and a book club and tried to make reading a little bit more visual, which helped me. And so here I am, um, you know, looking up to both my parents for different reasons. Mm. What was one of the lessons that your mother or father taught you that you still hold dear to your heart today? Oh man. Um, you know what? Uh, probably I learned this not in a traditional way, but your actions affect a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, this is, this is funny because I'm actually going to quote the legendary great Keanu Reeves, one of the greatest actors of <laughs> all time. Yes. But he was doing a, uh, yeah, right. He was doing an interview and I don't know if the host was trying to get into a religious debate, a political debate. I don't really know, but everybody was taken off guard by this answer. And basically the host said, Keanu, what do you think happens when you die? And what is the afterlife to you? And this answer was beautiful. He looked up and in front of a live audience, he said, uh, I know that when I'm gone, the people that loved me will miss me. Hmm. And it didn't take any political or religious back. You know, it, 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 there was none of that. It was just basically 
how I treat the world, the ones that I loved, the ones that respected me will miss me. And so here I am at 12 years old, I lost both my parents and their actions is their legacy. Mm -hmm. And what they did and how they treated people is ultimately how they're remembered. And so I think what I learned from my parents are you have a choice every single day on how you treat people. Um, and then I, you know, I, I've also learned that, you know, some people say, Hey, you know, treat others like you want to be treated. Mm. I think there's also a truth to treat yourself the way that you want to be treated. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, earlier, and I know we're kind of going on tangents, but I, I thought about this. Uh, you asked me what, what does success look like? Mm. And I said, success is happiness. And, uh, I, there's a few different ways to go to that, right? Success is happiness, but Look, I, I want to be rich. I enjoy having money. I, I enjoy having nice things in life. I want a big house for my family. I want to drive nice cars. Um, but if so, so this is something I had made. Okay. I actually commissioned this. Okay. And some people would be like, that is ridiculous. Okay. This is a global 5,000. Okay. And it's a model. And as you can see right there, there's my logo. It yeah. says, you know, John Dornboss. Now the, the tail number is four, six alpha Delta. So 46 was my football number. My mm -hmm. wife and daughter, both their names are Annalise and Amaya. So there's two A's and our last name is Dornboss. And then on the front of the plane, it says, life is magic right there. I, I look it. at this every day. All right. I look at this every day because one day I would love to own one of these. So this is, you know what? This is also what happiness looks like to me, right? Quality of life. But if this, the difference I think is if this is your end all be all, if this right here is what success is, then are you ever going to have it? Is it ever going to be enough? Is it, or are you constantly chasing a ghost? So for me, when I say that happy, that, that success is happiness, it allows me to dream of things like this and enjoy things like this. This is not the end all be all. This is hopefully just a perk along the way. And so, um, you know, I, I thought about that. I've been thinking about that question. And, um, you know, there's a lot of people that are like, wow, yeah, it must be nice. I mean, of course you want nice stuff and, and you do, but the materialistic is not the end all be all. The materialistic is the reward. Happiness is the ability to make decisions to get me there and to enjoy the path. And so, uh, and, and again, that all goes back to my parents too, is, is looking how they live their life. And now that both of them are no longer in my life, I have memories. And guess what? It's their legacy. And so I learned from both my parents that the way you act and the way you treat people, that when it's all said and done, what do you want your name to be? And, and what do you want people to think of when they hear your name? I love that. I like what you said that working hard, being happiness, happy and like the physical things that we sort of have as like a goal to work towards, but there's so much more to life than just achieving one particular goal, like a jet or something like that. I remember I was watching a video yesterday actually as well. Uh, what is Tony Robbins really like? And in one of the shots, the guy's on, on the tarmac and he's got all these jets and he's a young, small guy and he sees Tony Robbins' jet and on, on the, the tail end, it's got TR on it for Tony Robbins and he's, he's like, that is incredible. Just looking at it and seeing the prowess of, of this man, he owns a jet and it's like worth billions of dollars and yet here he is on this small jet, uh, on this small plane that he feels like he's going to... Um, break apart <laughs> and he's just like i want to aspire not to own a jet one day but to feel happy enough and satisfied enough that 
I don't have to be on this plane that is going to break apart or I feel like it's going to break apart. And I think that that holds a lot of value to it. Like having things is not a bad thing. It's how we look at it and how we perceive it. I think in Australia as well, there's this notion or idea that money is evil, money's bad because Aussies, we don't really talk about money a lot. I don't know why that is. And for me, the way I was brought up and I've never strived for money. I've never wanted a great deal of money because I've realized that the moment I do that, money's not going to come or it, it will come, but not much of it. And I won't be ever happy. And secondly, I realized that when it's all said and done, what have I got left? Have I got my relationships? Have, have I created positive relationships? And what you said with Keanu Reeves is perfect. Will the people still love me without money? And will, they miss, and, and, yeah, and, will they miss you? And will they miss you? Yeah. <clears throat> I'm, I'm curious. Yes. Sorry, John. I'm sorry. I wanted to ask you, you, you mentioned there that you don't have both your parents in your life. Are you able to uh, share what actually happened? Yeah. So um, look, I, I grew up in, and you saw the house I grew up in. Um, so when I was 12 years old, I was across the street playing at a friend's house and there was a bell on our patio and look, we didn't have cell phones back then. There was no pagers. There's none of that. So when I would hear this bell ring, that means it was time for me to go home. And I could, I could hear it from, you know, houses down. So whatever, it was eight, nine o'clock. I hear the bell ring. All right, it's time for me to go home, which is totally normal. Um, and I found out uh, and I learned that my father had murdered my mother that night. And they had gotten in an argument in the garage. And he took a bench grinder and a sledgehammer and murdered my mom. And he rolled her up and put her in the trunk of his car. And then he later turned himself in. And so my dad was tried for second degree murder. Uh, he was convicted. And now in the state of Washington, second degree murder only had a max penalty of 13 years. So he knew as long as he didn't go down for first degree. And so the difference, if, if people don't know, there's a difference in degrees of murder, right? First degree is I wrote this down. It's premeditated. I either hired a hitman or here's my plan. Here's everything I bought. And I showed up to execute to intentionally murder someone. Second degree murder um, is, look, we got an argument. I lost it and I killed this person. Right. So both are wrong and both are murder, but the motive um, and the, the psychological motive behind each one kind of dictates what the sentence is. I mean, if you're first degree, you know, you're looking at life in prison. Second degree, you're looking at 13 years in the state of Washington. That's a big difference. So um, he was convicted of second degree murder. My family obviously came up for the trial. And um, after that, my sister and I were going in, I was going into sixth grade, which was the last year that I'd be at this elementary school. My sister was going into ninth grade, which was the last year that she would be at this junior high. So my family decided, why don't these kids stay up in Washington, finish the school year, uh, and then they'll move down south with my mom's sister, uh, my aunt Susan. And so my sister and I lived in a temporary foster home for about eight months. And during that time, I'm so grateful because my sister and I went through the most intense therapy you can possibly imagine going through. We met multiple times a week, sometimes individually, and then sometimes her and I together. And to me, that's where the building blocks of myself were, were built. Mm. What sort of was going through your brain and what was the sort of psychological impact to start off with when you realized that your dad had murdered your mom? 
you know, I was at a baseball camp. Uh, so, so what happened is I went home, obviously I didn't know my dad, we hung out the next morning. I left for a baseball camp. And then that next day is when he turned himself in. And so the police picked me up at the baseball camp. They drove me to the police station and they basically said, Hey, your, your parents had an argument. Your mom didn't make it. And now you can say whatever you want. Nobody really knows how they would act or what they would think until they're put into certain situations. And so for me, um, it was basically, what do you go through? Right. So, um, when I went home, uh, that night, my dad and I hung out and obviously he kept me from what he had done. And the next morning I left for a baseball camp. Uh, and then he ended up turning himself in. So, uh, a police officer came to the baseball camp I was at and brought me to the police station. And I was told that the parents had an argument and your mom didn't make it. And so you don't really know what you would ever think until you're put into a situation and uh, I'll tell you this, there were months of my life during that time that were just a blur um, that, you know, you wake up every day and it's Groundhog's Day and you think that everything's a nightmare. And I don't think you really process the severity of what's going on. You don't really process it. The only thing that allows you to grieve is time. The only thing that allows you to sometimes accept certain realities is time and constantly telling yourself what your new reality is. Um, it was by far, I mean, look, walking and, and seeing your dad. So, so here's the other thing, right? Is you're confused. And so as, as a 12 year old, I might not be aware of some realities. So look, a lot of people knew that it was a bad deal, but to me, there's no way like my dad's innocent. He's literally going to be coming home in a few days. We're going to be going back as normal. And so to learn the maliciousness of what my dad did was a whole different grieving process. At the same time, you're, you're grieving, losing your mom who became a victim of such evilness. And then the whole time you think it's fake. And then the whole time you think everybody else is lying and, and your dad is innocent. Like my dad didn't do that. Mm. So you have these, you have these multiple layers of truth and reality and evilness that you have to grieve through simultaneously. And it, it was super difficult. I mean, it was by far the, the hardest thing ever. Um, I mean, this, this right here, I mean, you, you do this. You know, and and you see your dad walking through a a courthouse, and you know these are these are clips from the trial. Um, that was me right there, and during during the whole thing. And so, um, when you live that, man, uh, you, you never forget it. I can imagine, man. Like that is that's hard stuff to even process, even at the age of twenty three. Um, I'm curious about. This, this idea of forgiveness, what do you believe forgiveness really is? And did it take you a long time to actually forgive your dad for what he did? All right. So this is a, this is a multi-layered lifetime struggle and journey mm-hmm. uh, in therapy. My, my therapist kept saying, I want you to find forgiveness. I want you to find happiness. I want you to find this and that. And as a kid, you're just like, Hey, whatever, pal, let's do this. Right. Um, I'll, I'll never forget. Uh, everybody thought my therapist was crazy but he wanted my sister and I to view the autopsy photos of my mom. And when I say the whole world thought he was crazy, everybody did. And so during the trial, um, they actually had the autopsy photos and they angled them in a way that only the jurors could see it. There were news cameras everywhere um, and there were people watching the trial. And so nobody could see it. And my therapist got really upset. So what happened is my therapist went to court and he actually uh, got a court order for my sister and I to be the first minors to have a private viewing of an autopsy photo. And so now we show up to the, uh, the prosecutor's office and, and everybody thinks he's crazy, right? They don't understand this. They think it's just terrible. Fortunately for me, 
my grandparents on my mom's side, and then also my aunt Susan, they were all into the process. And they literally just trusted that, hey, if, if it's going to get these kids right, then it is what it is. And so what happens is my sister and I, we go to the prosecutor's office. Prosecutor walks in, she takes a folder and she sets it on the table. And then she says, I can't believe you're doing this to these kids. And she leaves. And I'll never forget my therapist, man. He looked at my sister and he goes, you know what? I really don't care if you see this, but why should it be anybody else's decision but yours? Because the last I checked, this is your life, kid. It ain't theirs. So he gets up and he goes, I'm going to leave. And if you want to look, look. And if you don't, don't. And I won't even ask. But I'm going to tell you this right now. Time's going to go by. And maybe, just maybe, you might want to sit down with your dad. You might want to have lunch. You might want to have coffee. If you decide to do that, and I know it doesn't seem like the popular decision right now, but I know how life works. And if later on in life, you decide to sit down with your dad and have a conversation, if you look at these pictures, it'll be for reasons other than wanting to know what happened. It'll be a far more powerful conversation than just wanting answers. Because in this folder, this is what happened. And nobody will ever be able to tell you differently because the truth is right here. It's your choice. And so sure enough, uh, he left. I opened the folder. I looked. I just glimpsed through. And that was that. Um, so now my life progresses, right? And, and I learned that uh, when my, okay, when my mom died, um, she had a jewelry box. And inside the jewelry box, there was three chains with a uh, little medallion, St. Christopher's on it. And when the kids, I have a brother, a sister, and me. So she had, my mom had three kids. When we would turn 18, she was going to give us those necklaces. Well, obviously she passed. And so they were given to us at that moment. And so I wore this gold chain with a St. Christopher around it. And I felt like that was me being as close to my mom as I possibly could. All right. So now we go through the therapy, we go through the trial. My sister and I move in with my aunt, uh, Susan, who uh, she's in the middle right there. That was my mom's younger sister. That's me. And then that's my sister there. We moved down to Southern California and uh, I'll never forget this. I went down to Huntington beach and I jumped in the ocean. And when I came out, no necklace, no chain. And so it fell off in the ocean. And I was literally like just devastated. Like I was just so distraught, so mad, so angry, so just sad because that's all I had, right? And then I would go back for a few days and I looked and I, it was gone. And then for whatever reason, I just sat on the beach and I looked around and there's people walking their dogs and there's people playing volleyball. And I realized nobody cares. Mm. Nobody cares. Right. But then I kind of realized, I bet you they all have their problems too. So what separates us? It's probably the story that we tell ourselves. Mm. So I remember looking in the ocean and I, and I stood up and I just, I just felt this relief. Right. I just felt like this empowerment and this joy and this sense of freedom. When I finally realized that I was never meant to wear that necklace, it was never meant for me. My mom loved to travel and she loved the ocean and, and who doesn't. Right. And so my job, was just to carry the necklace back to where she grew up to Southern California, to jump in the ocean, to have it fall off, to then land on a, on a dolphin who then carried it as far as the dolphin could. And the necklace fell off and landed on a whale who went over to Hawaii. And then a sea turtle took it over to Australia. And then she went to Thailand. And so I told myself that the necklace was never for me. It was just for me to continue my mom's legacy and my mom's journey. And so that at that moment, I realized that the story I tell myself in really bad situations can make a big difference. And you know what? It did. It did. And all of a sudden, I wasn't the victim. All of a sudden, life wasn't ganging up on me. All of a sudden, there was a purpose to what had happened. And now get this. My mom was buried in Seattle, right? I moved down to Southern California. 
well, now I don't have to go to a cemetery and see a stone because I know anytime I see the ocean, that necklace has been there and done that, which means that was my mom, which means now anytime I want to see my mom, I just go to the ocean anywhere in the world. And I just feel like she's been there. And so it was a sense of peace, right? And then time goes on, time goes on. And what ended up happening is my wife got pregnant and, uh, and we were months, uh, well, she was eight, nine months pregnant. And sure enough, um, I remember looking at my mom saying, or I'm, I'm sorry, I remember looking at my wife saying, hey, there's three words that I've never said out loud. I've never said, I forgive you. And so sure enough, as my wife was pregnant, I said, it's, it's time for me to go see my dad. It's time for me to sit down with him after 27 years and have a conversation. And I boarded the plane. And uh, I think what's kind of cool is that I lifted up the shade and it was dark and overcast. And I look, I was nervous, clammy. I, I basically had reached out to him in an email. I, I tracked down his email address and I said, hey, um, you know, it's been a long time. If you want to sit and, and have lunch, let's do it. He replied back. He said, I was waiting for it to be your time and I would love to. And so sure enough, my dad and I met and uh, I flew to where he was living. It was between shows. I was actually in Canada. So I flew from Canada to where he was and I was going on to Vegas. We sat for five and a half hours. And on the way to go see him was the moment I had when I looked out the window and I said, man, I'll be darned. And I thought of my therapist who said, if you look at these pictures, you're going to be wanting to see your dad for far more reasons than just what happened. And so I, I literally wrote out the plan that I had, like a game plan, like I'd learned to do in football for over 20 years. What, why was I going there? What was the purpose? And just stay on task, right? And the purpose for me was to say, I forgive you. This journey was about me. And so as I sat across from my dad, he would go on political tangents. And anytime I would ask a meaningful conversation, I felt like he kind of veered, um, which I understand. And then at times, if I got frustrated because I wanted an answer, I just sat back. And I realized that's not why I'm there. And I realized that forgiveness for me, for the first time in my life, forgiveness all of a sudden to me, it wasn't about winning and losing. It wasn't about agreeing with what you did. It wasn't about one-upping. It wasn't about I win, you lose. It had nothing to do with a white flag and a winner and loser. And finally, when I was looking at my dad, it was all about me. Forgiveness for the first time I learned, I don't care what you think. I don't care what you do. I don't care what's, what you're going to do after this conversation, but me saying, I forgive you for being lost. And I forgive you for making a mistake was me saying, I'm okay with who I am. I'm okay with where I come from. And instead of becoming what I despise, instead of making you an excuse to be a bad dad and a bad husband of which, unfortunately society would understand, you know, if I did something stupid, they'd be like, Ooh, man, if you knew his childhood and what his dad did, you'd understand. I didn't want to be that guy. And, you know, we talked earlier, like I, the one thing that drives me nuts, don't babysit me, right? Bed check in football. Don't come in here and check on me. Don't babysit me. I'm going to be a grown ass man. And so instead, here we go. Everything comes full circle, mm -hmm. right? Find motivation and defeat. And so what I did is I looked at my dad and I remember thinking to myself, who are you? Like, who are you? And I remember going, man, that right there, that is one sentence that my daughter will never say to me ever. And then as I'm sitting there, across from my dad, my soul is realizing I'm finding motivation in every aspect of my life to be the best dad I possibly can be. And looking at my dad, thinking about what the relationship could have been, what the relationship should have been, what did him and I miss out on? I realized all the reasons why I'm so excited to be a dad. And uh, I wrote a book called Life is Magic. 
And on the front page, there's a dedication. And in that dedication, it says to my little girl, Amaya, you'll forever be able to have lunch with your daddy. I never got to have lunch with my dad. And when my friends would ask me, hey, John, you want to come meet my dad and I for lunch? I always said yes, but I would always try and meet them there. And I didn't realize this till later on in life. Why? But I just always wanted to meet him there. And I realized I wanted to walk into a restaurant and I wanted to see a son and a dad just hanging out laughing and just having lunch together. I never got to have that. And so the dedication to my daughter and when my daughter was born and they handed her to me, it's the first thing I said to her. I said, oh my gosh, I love you. And you're forever going to be able to have lunch with your daddy. And what that statement means to me is I'll always be there for him. And I will always do anything I can to give you the advice, um, my patience. I'm going to work on it, but I'm going to let you make your mistakes and let you figure things out. But man, I will always be there. And you'll, no matter what, I'm a phone call away and you'll always be able to have lunch with your daddy. And uh, I think for me, this journey um, in forgiveness has taught me a lot about myself. And it's taught me that bitterness is man is such a, is such a, um, it's such a negative thing that goes on in your soul, anger, resentment, holding on to just evilness, right? These things weigh you down and forgiveness became the key to turn bitterness into joy and to turn anger into happiness and to turn this burden into wings uh, to fly. And um, I think if there's anybody out there listening, that's having a problem with the past and I've talked to a lot of people that their parents beat them or they were raped or they're just, just really, really bad things. Nelson Mandela gave a speech and it was amazing. And it, and it really resonated with me. He basically, look, he got locked up. And uh, when he got out, well, when he was in prison, he said, uh, he got the inmates together and he said, Hey, we are all free men. If the guards do not hold our souls, we will be free men. And so sure enough, Nelson Mandela gets out of prison. And he said, check this out. He said, I didn't feel like I was in prison till I was released and free because of the resentment and bitterness I had at lost time. I mentally put myself back in prison, but I was free. And that right there, when I read that, it basically just said, don't let the past affect your future. You know, I, I've, we all know, we all probably know people that get divorced and sure enough, years and years later, one of those people are still holding the other one responsible for everything bad in their life, right? I realized that my dad's not really in my life, right? He's not my life. So every day that I go forward and he affects my life in a negative way, that is my fault. That is nobody else's fault. And there is no excuse for that. So come to terms with it. Be okay with it. Forgive him in your heart because the reality is he's here. Whether I want him to be or not, it doesn't matter. He is. So wish him the best. I hope he changes the world. I hope he... He prevents somebody else from making the same mistake he did. But you know what the reality is? He is not my problem. He is not my responsibility. Right here, my own mind, this is my problem. This is my responsibility. And if I can tell myself the stories in here to let go of the bitterness and to get back on the road for happiness, hmm, that's a powerful thing right there. Honestly, man, I don't even know where to go to from that. That was... That was beautiful. And I think you, you summed it up perfectly. And I love how you, you've attributed it to the fact that it's a choice to allow all this stuff to affect you. And this is the powerful story, man, really is it affected my brain. Uh, I, I, uh, so here's kind of a cool story. So I, uh, 
I'm with the Eagles. It's 2006. So I'd spent a couple years in Buffalo. I played for the Tennessee Titans and I signed with the Philadelphia Eagles in 2006. Um, I, I believe in signs, right? I believe that um, if we choose to see the signs, they're out there. And so uh, I'm getting ready for a game. I'm walking out and sure enough, there's this, there's this reporter, Joe Sanluquito. And he says, John, can I ask you a question? So yeah, yeah. What do you got? Hurry up. It's game time, you know, and the questions you get, Hey, what, you know, what do you think of this guy? And you know, if this happens in a game, what are you guys going to do? They're usually pretty superficial and usually hear the same question over and over and over. And he hit me with something that just completely took me off guard. He said, John, uh, I read an article that your mom's best friend, Leslie Moore sang the song wind beneath my wings at her funeral. Is that true? And I just went, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, uh, yeah, yeah. She actually went behind a pipe and drape because she didn't think she'd be able to sing it in front of the, all the people she thought she would cry. So yeah, yeah, it's true. Um, all right, man. Thanks, dude. Yeah, I appreciate it. I got to go. And he looked at me and he says, you don't get it. I go, no, no, no I get it. Bette Midler, you know, 80s, 90s beaches, you know, Broadway, go see her. She's phenomenal. He says, actually, no, you, you don't get it. I know your story. I know where you come from. I know that you've bounced around teams and you haven't really found a home. And correct me if I'm wrong. The song says, I can fly higher than an eagle because you are the wind beneath my wings. He goes, you're an eagle now. There it is, man. Hmm. How about that? What is that? The, what is that? The, I have a chord in the way there. It says the wings. Of, uh, it's wow. Isaiah 40 verse 31, which basically says, those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will hmm. soar on the wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. And then on the cover, it says the wings of eagles are the wings like eagles. And uh, yeah. there's so much symbolism in that, man. Yeah. There's so much symbol. I mean, think about this. When a storm comes, birds fly away. They leave their home. The eagle is the only one that lifts his wings open and soars above the storm mm. and stays to protect his home. Mm. And then all of a sudden, when the storm passes, he lets his wings down and then he soars back to it. He's the only one that actually rides the storm. Mm. He doesn't run. She doesn't run. The Eagles make for life. You know, it's uh, the Eagle. It, it's an amazing thing. And so this reporter said, you're an Eagle now. And we're going to root for you. So uh, I hope you do great things. And uh, when, when life is down and out, just, just open the wings and let the wind take you. Mm. So what's the irony of this story? Um, I ended up going, uh, I, I played every single game as a Philadelphia Eagle. And uh, it was a great, great time of my life. Uh, I played 162 straight games, which means I hold the, the most consecutive games played in Philadelphia Eagles franchise history. Um, and it was one of the best times of my life. I played over 11 years for one team in the NFL, which is almost unheard of. And so when the team came to me and they said, hey, John, we want to trade you. Uh, and they wanted to trade me to the New Orleans Saints. My first thought was, dude, what are you, what are you talking about? Like, I'm Mr. Eagle. Like, I, you can't trade me, right? And then all of a sudden, the GM, the general manager came to me, and I think he thought I was going to be upset. And I just remember thinking of everything I'd been through in life. And I really remember losing the necklace at the beach. And I remember that, hey, whether you want this to happen to you or not, it's happening. So guess what? You better be okay with it really, really quick because there's going to be a positive. You just got to hang tight and see it, right? Mm -hmm. Just find a reason. And so I looked at him and I said, hey, let's do this. And so I go, if this is the reality of my situation, if the team is, is moving on, then then let's do it. And so what happens is they actually traded me to a team called the New Orleans Saints. Um, and I got to play for New Orleans. It was amazing. I signed there. I was super, super excited, even though technically in this picture, I might not look that excited, but I was. Um, and what happened is when, when you get traded, you go through a physical. 
Um, and during that physical, they test because you're an asset, right? So they test you to make sure that they're buying a, a healthy asset. Uh, when I flew in, I flew in the day before a game. And so what happened is the doctors were out of town. So I ended up playing in one game. And then the next day I actually had my physical and they, uh, I, I took the physical, they put a stethoscope on my chest. The doctor did, I took a few breaths and then sure enough, they're like, Hey, something doesn't sound right. So uh, we're going to send you down to the hospital. You're going to get some a heart test. Now put yourself in my shoes. I was in, I was going into my 15th year in the NFL. I never thought I'd ever play. I'd made two pro bowls. I was an all pro. Um, and I have a bunch of accolades. I've won a bunch of awards and I've, the, the relationships I've had are unbelievable. And going into my 15th year, when I got traded to new Orleans, I got a three-year extension. That was more money than I'd made. I mean, it was literally, I was going to make the most money I'd ever made in those three years. I was 37 at the time. And I was going to a team with all black uniforms, which for a 37 year old white pudgy white guy is very, very flattering, very slimming, right? They play indoors, which means most of the games I was getting out of the Northeast up by Philadelphia is up by New York. So it's cold in the winter and it snows. I was going to go down South in Louisiana where all of a sudden it was warm and it was indoors. So it's like so many things. And so I go to the hospital, I take my test, my heart test. I go back, I'm getting ready for practice. And sure enough, I get a phone call and I, I, it was a Louisiana area. You know, yeah, hello. And they're like, hey, John, uh, are you sitting down? I said, no. They're like, why don't you sit down? We got some we got some news for you. All right, here's the deal, John. You're never playing football ever again. And you're probably going to be in emergency open heart surgery in the next 48 hours. I'm, I'm sorry, what? Uh, you, have, you have a heart condition. It, it requires emergency open heart surgery. The trainers are on their way. The doctors are on their way. This is what they tell me. Now, keep in mind, I'm getting ready for practice, right? Sit down. Don't drink caffeine. Try not to laugh. Don't raise your voice. Try not to cough. Don't walk fast. Don't lift any over five pounds. You're just going to sit there until we get to you. And so now all of a sudden you're like, holy, like what is happening right now? Right. And so I took my helmet off and I put it in my locker and I saw my own reflection. And literally I started tearing up and it was more, I felt angry that this is how my career is going to end. I'd worked so hard. Right. And finally I was in a place where my wife and I were just so happy. And I'm like, dude, for how much hard work I've put in, this is not how I'm going down right? It's not how I'm going down. Then I took my cleats off. I put them in my locker. And then all of a sudden I sat down and I, I, I became the victim, right? I was living in circumstance. And I kid you not, this guy walked by me. This is a picture of my man, Drew Brees and me uh, oh, before Drew the Brees. first game I played. Yeah. So I got to play with Drew. So Drew walks by me. And when Drew walked by me, I saw his last name, Brees, B-R-E-E-S. And I kid you not, I stopped and I closed my eyes and I instantly thought of my man, Joe Santaloquito in the tunnel, the Philadelphia Eagles in 2006. And then I thought of the necklace. And then I thought, man, there's something else here. Like, I'm not, this, this is like such a bigger thing. Like, what's going on? And I remember looking up in the sky and I went, holy cow. The team I got traded to is called the New Orleans Saints. So here we go. I told myself this story that my mom sent me to Philly to have the wind beneath my wings for a long time. And then my mom traded me to have my life saved by a saint. And when I needed a sign, a breeze walked by me. And I basically told myself that it was my mom's way of saying that sometimes in life, no matter how good it is, you got to step out of the wind and catch a breeze and just slow down. And uh, she did. And so sure enough, um, I was told I was going to have a four hour surgery. Uh, the surgery ended up being 11 and a half hours. And uh, this was me. I'm now part of the zipper club. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, I have a, uh, I, I had a condition, which I'll, I'll show you guys this. This was my echocardiogram. And it, just to, in a nutshell, that circle right there should be that size right there. 
Oh, so there's a big difference there, right? Oh, huge difference. And so uh, to put it into terms, this is what one of the conditions I had is I had an aneurysm in my ascending aorta. That should be about the size of a dime or a nickel. Well, that started to blow up like a water balloon. And that right there became the size of a soda can. And so the, think about the vein that leaves your heart, right? Should be about this big. Mine was that big. If that pops, you are lights out. You're dead before you hit the ground. And there is nothing anybody can do. So just think about that. Like they, they were telling me that, John, you were one hit away from that thing just rupturing. You're sitting here playing in the NFL and you're one hit away. You get popped in the chest. Look, I was two days away from, or I was a couple of days away from playing Monday night football, you know? And it's like, Holy cow. Um, and so that's it. And then your, your life completely stops. Right. And, and I had open heart surgery, 11 and a half hours. Uh, it was a huge success. Uh, I'm alive. You know, things in my life have definitely changed, but uh, every day I'm just so thankful to be alive. Did you know how long that, heart condition was there for? Do they, do they know? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I found out in a hurry because uh, if it was football related, I'm guaranteed all my money, which was millions, millions and millions, right? Oh, so let me just tell you that there were plenty of people telling me that, oh, no, this was a, you were born, you were born with a, a heart defect. And sure enough, I was. So now all of a sudden that is not football related, which means no one void the contract, which means we don't have to pay you anything. You know what I mean? So uh, it was not a football related injury. And look, I'm not, uh, I'm not, yeah, I would have done the same thing if I was them too, right? They're not responsible for it. So I was basically born with a heart defect. I didn't know about it. I've had it my entire life. And that aneurysm over time has just been growing and growing and growing. And so one of the problems is uh, I'm going to, I'll do this. I'm going to try and uh, give you guys a visual. So here's three playing cards, right? And imagine that there's the valve, which is like a door and there's three doors. This is absolutely terrible. Um, <laughs> and there's, forget it. You have uh, the vein that leaves the heart at the top, right? If you think about, if you were to walk into your front door, you walk into the front door, you open the door and then you close the door. So now let's imagine that's the blood coming from the lungs into the heart. Mm -hmm. Now you're going to walk through your house and you're going to go out the back door, right? But when I go out the back door, that's the blood leaving the heart. So you would open a door, you'd walk out into the backyard, then you would close the door behind you. So the blood does the same thing. It comes in from the lungs, the door opens, blood comes in, door closes, it goes through the heart, and then it leads through that aorta we just saw, door opens, door closes. So my problem, one of the problems I had is the blood that left the heart, um, when the door would open, the door wouldn't close. So most people have three valves that open like this. There we go. Three valves, and, and the door is like a three door. I only had two, so I had French doors, right? So I was missing a valve. So now what happens is over time, this is wear and tear. Well, over time, one of them started to fall inside the heart. So the door would open, the blood would leave, but then when the door closed, it would fall back into the heart. Then all of a sudden there's holes all over my valve, just like grated cheese. And so as blood would leave my heart, like at times 60% of the blood was falling back into the heart. Okay, so now where does the problem happen? If you imagine this, your brain is the boss and your heart is an employee. And the boss is telling the heart, I need five quarts of blood a minute to be able to, to work. Well, the heart can calculate that. So if you can imagine that when the blood would be pumped out and falling back in the heart, my heart could calculate the actual percentage of blood that was getting distributed in my body. And so to make the math easy, um, let's just say 40% was leaving right? Well, now my heart, if, if a normal heart would pump like this, and that would give my body five quarts of blood a minute, well, now it's pumping two and a half times faster to compensate. So the 40% 
would equal the hundred percent five chords. Mm. Well, your your I hope that makes sense. Um, yes. Yeah. Your heart your heart's a muscle, and so which means if your muscles working too hard too fast, it's going to grow. Okay, so now here is the underlying big, big problem besides the aneurysm, which now that's fixed. The big problem is if you imagine a pair of sweatpants, if you pull those sweatpants and, and you keep pulling the elastic band, eventually your, your waistline, the, the waistband doesn't snap back, right? They're stretched out. Well, your heart can get so big that it gets stretched out. Okay, so now my heart gets fixed, right? And so now, okay, is your heart going to shrink on its own? My heart shrank on its own. That's big. For whatever reason, 50% is like the, the, the score that your heart needs to get as far as the strength of squeeze. Don't ask me why. That's just the scale. 60%, you're like amazing. So when I got out of surgery, it was like 29%. Okay. If your score for the strength of squeeze that your heart actually pumps the blood out of your heart, I need that to be over 50%. If you're below 50% on the scale, your life expectancy is about 50, 55 years old and it's lights out. You know, so you're... You're, you're not really looking to live a long, your heart's going to give out. So uh, two things, either you're going to die really young or you got to have a heart transplant. Both of both are two things that you don't really want to think about. And there's no medication, excuse me, there's no medication you can take. There's no exercises you can do. It's one of those things that your body's either going to kick in or it's not. And so, excuse me, uh, your body's either going to kick in or it's not. And so what happens is over time, you have about a year and a half. And so I would keep going back to get tested. My heart was shrinking, Right. And then I got to 35%. Then I got to 40. Then I got to 42%. And then finally, at my two-year checkup, I got to 52%. And so if you figure there's a 2% error in the testing, I'm at 50%, which means I'm right there. You know, I'm at the bottom, but I'm in, I'm in the bell curve of life to where now you can expect to live to 80, 85 years old, which is the normal lifespan. So um, yeah, there's a lot of scary moments. You know, I was on 21 pills for about 10 months. Um, I, I feel more bad for my wife who had to organize, you know, take this pill every three hours, this one every four hours, can't take these two together. Well, it was, a, it was a full-time job. It was unbelievable. I can imagine, man. Like I, I remember it's not to take away from your story, but I can resonate with the heart aspect because, uh, a couple of years ago, I actually had pain in my chest and I had no idea what it was. And I'm a young, thick, healthy guy. I've been always been that way. For some reason, health internally has never been the best. Um, like if I was to tell you how many times I've been to hospital, you'd probably be like, what? Um, but I remember that I had the pain in my chest. So I went to go and see a cardiologist and the cardiologist gave me the stress test and all that sort of stuff. And then I had a, a ECG. The reason, the reason why they, I went to the cardiologist was because I went to the uh, doctor. They gave me an ECG. It was abnormal. And then cardiologist, once again, abnormal ECG gave me a stress test. I, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to pass this with, with ease. They, they put me on the highest possible level of the stress test and I was going at it, going at it. I didn't, didn't, give, didn't want to give up. And they're like, okay, Jay, just stop. Okay, you've made your point. <laughs> Sit down. Um, we're we're going we're gonna to talk this out. So they went through all, all the stats and then the reason why I actually had pain in, in my chest was because they found out that my heart, number one, is abnormally large. And number two, it skips a beat. So every time I'm going at it, then sometimes I might feel like, like, um. So is, is that is that asymptomatic or no? Is that? I think so. Yeah. Is that is that AFib? Yeah. When you skip a, a beat. AFib. Yeah. yeah. So I've I've got that, and I think I was 21 or 20 when I found that out. Like, 
I just remember sitting there. I'm like, so is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? Like, and he's like, it's, it's not going to really affect you. Just try and keep your stress levels down. Uh, otherwise, you, you're going because I used to struggle struggle with panic attacks um, all throughout high school, and and I've tried my absolute best. And, and when I tell people, you know, my heart's abnormally large and it skips a beat, they're like, "No, it doesn't." I'm like, try, like, and they're like, "Oh, did, no you, way. did they? Did you have an option to do a pacemaker?" <laughs> they said later on in later on in life, <laughs> if it does get worse, then there is potential of having a pacemaker, but as long as I keep myself healthy, I eat properly, you know, but you can't beat genetics. Like that's, that's the one thing. Like you can't, I've been, I've been hit with so many different like health obstacles and it's given me ample reason to question why, why me? But at the end of the day, I've got a choice to use this for a positive or I could use it for a negative. I can allow it to say, Oh, well, as me, I've got an abnormally large heart. I think it's cool. Like, honestly, I think it's, it's pretty cool. Regardless of like when I tell people, hey, I've got an abnormally large heart and the look on their faces, they're like, you're, you're unique. I'm like, I know, I like being unique. So it's not a, not a bad thing. So when you mentioned the open heart surgery and what was going on with, with the heart, I was able to, to learn pretty much the same thing and mm-hmm. it made a lot of sense to me. So. Thank you. <laughs> well, and, and you know what, what else is amazing? And this is, uh, this can go on so many different levels, right? Um, and, and this is a, a, just a microcosm of life. All of a sudden, I'm having heart surgery. Look, I, I've heard of murmurs. I've heard of clots. I've heard of aneurysms. But if you had asked me to describe what those are, I couldn't tell you. Right? I couldn't tell you. But all of a sudden, you're thrown into a situation. What happens? It's amazing how fast you learn. It's amazing how fast complex things become crystal clear and you can simplify them to tell them to yourself and tell them to others. Mm-hmm. That right there is exactly what happens in self-discovery. I mean, think about it. How many people are scared to really get to know themselves? How many people are really scared to go into the really dark places? How many people are scared to go confront somebody years and years later in a safe environment to find peace and resolution? A lot, a lot. But it's amazing that when you're thrown into a situation and you take the first step, how fast you learn, how fast you grow, and how fast everything makes sense. Mm-hmm. Because the, the body's amazing. The mind is an amazing thing. Absolutely. I, I totally agree with you, John. And like, if I look at my life, and I'm only 23, so I'm 24 next month. and Young, young pup, man. You are a young pup. Still very young. But all the things that I've been through in life, you know, almost died three times. Um, on I wasn't even really meant to be here. And like the amazing thing is, I don't know if you believe in God, John, but I, I do. I believe that God has saved me for, for a higher purpose. And he's like, each and every time, he's like, Jay, you're not done yet. I'm not done with you. He's like, you're going, I'm going to use you for something. And I may not know what that is one day. But your story is valuable, just like yours is, John. Mm. And I want to, I can relate to so many different young people, old people, doesn't matter with, with what I've had to endure in my life and the family dynamic as well. Uh, you know, I went from a boy to a man overnight at 16 and having to just be there for my mum and, 
it was, it was a crazy period of time, like a lot of stress. And I always say it's like the phantom curse. Nothing really goes right for the, the phantoms. But that's the beauty of it though because where would the fun be in life if everything went our way? <laughs> like, and, and I laugh about it, not to, to put on a joker mask or anything like no, that. It's, it's true. So it's, true. I wouldn't have it any other way, to be honest with you. I've got, I've got a question for you, John. If you were to give, if you were to be given another chance at life, what would you do differently? <laughs> I would have played baseball. <laughs> um, you know, um, that's the butterfly effect, mm-hmm. right? You can go, if you can go back and change one thing, but now if you change that, you don't end up where you are today. Yep. And so, um, I love where I am today and it was worth the journey. You know, it was worth being in a, uh, a very heartbreaking marriage and divorce. It was worth, now look, obviously I'd love to have my parents here. I mean, yeah, I'd love my mom to be here. I'd love my dad to be normal and, and I would love to have that relationship, but I don't, um, you know, so if, if all could be the same and yeah, I would, I would love for my parents to not have ended up the way they were. You know, that, that would be my obvious. Um, but given the situation that I'm in, um, you know, this is one thing I'm proud of. And, and I didn't ask for this. It just kind of happened uh, when I was playing in the NFL. Uh, there, there became a time where all of a sudden cities would call. And so, for instance, if we were playing the, the Cincinnati Bengals, right, a rep from the team in Cincinnati would call the Eagles and say, hey, uh, something just happened to this family not too long ago. And um, the mom murdered the husband um and now there's three kids and and would john sit down with these kids uh well yeah of course and so on an away game you leave at like three in the afternoon you get there you usually have two or three hours to yourself you have meetings you go to bed you wake up sunday you play you drive right to the airport you drive on the runway you get on your plane you take off so you don't have a lot of time in the away cities and so on my time off i would sit a lot of times with these kids and you know it was a moment where i realized even though I might never think I've made it right. Cause we're constantly searching and we're constantly on this journey. Mm-hmm. Other people look at me as if I did. And then I would look at these kids and I was like, Oh my gosh, I'm literally looking at my 12 year old self right now. And had King Griffey jr. Or Jay Buhner or these baseball players that I had looked up to said, come sit in this room and let me talk to you. And had they looked at me and said, I went through the exact same thing you did. I mean, Oh my gosh. Like I, I don't, I don't know how that would have affected me. It blew my mind. And so I would do magic for these kids and I would talk to them. And then the last hour I would just sit there and be like, Hey, there's a reason why I'm here because you see how much fun we had. You can still find happiness. And I will probably be the only one you'll ever meet that has literally been through the exact same thing you have been there. I've been in this dark tunnel and just believe in yourself, your family, when you want to cry, cry. When you want to scream, scream. When you want to talk, talk. When you want to write in a journal, write in a journal. But I promise you, life is still worth living. And whether it was their mom and their dad that got killed, you're going to see them everywhere you go. They're in the wind, they're in the rain, they're in the sun, they're in the birds, they're everywhere. And you know what? I, I just did an interview not too long ago. And I said something that I didn't even think about. It just came out. And then afterwards, I was like, oh my gosh, it's so true. Like, I actually think that I might see my mom more now versus had she still been alive. 
because I see her everywhere. And had she been alive, I guess I would see her a couple times a year, you know, when I've traveled to Seattle and go see her. But now I see her everywhere. Now that doesn't, that doesn't replace her. That doesn't take back what happened. That doesn't mean I don't wish she was here, but there's the choice. Keep them alive, mm. you know, and make decisions to make those people proud. So, um, yeah, I wish my parents could have worked out like everybody else, but they didn't. And, uh, if it was a superficial thing, what would I change? I wish I would have played baseball because I probably would have made a shitload more money. <laughs> <laughs> and got hit a lot less. <laughs> oh my God. And had and had way less surgeries. Yeah. But but are you ready for this? Are you ready for this? But then would they have discovered my heart? Mm. I don't know. I might have been dead. You know, here, here's a great story. So uh, I do America's Got Talent. Um, and I, I become a finalist, right? I make it to the top three. Well, the following year, Nick Cannon was the host. He quits. So what do I do? I get a call that says, hey, John, we want you to host America's Got Talent. I'm sorry, what? We want you to host America's Got Talent. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is a dream job. Like this is literally, when I was performing on that show, I remember after one of the uh, episodes that we filmed, I left the stage, I, I progressed in the next round. My wife literally looked at me and said, the winner of this show is going to host the show. She's like, I just have a feeling like the winner of the show is going to be the host. So what happens is, NBC went a different direction, but I was literally right there till the end, right? And they ended up uh, uh, casting Tyra Banks, which is fine. It's all good. So now all of a sudden I go back to playing football. I then get traded to the New Orleans Saints. They then discover my aneurysm. But think about this in the moment where literally hosting America's Got Talent was my dream job. I'm like, oh my gosh, I do this. I'm on prime time. I'm selling out theaters. Like everything in my life is just going to, it's just going to, it's just going to work out. That was my dream job. That's all I wanted. All right. So now, Boom. It doesn't happen. I was a little bit bummed. I go back to which, I mean, let's be honest, plan B playing in the NFL. It's not the worst plan B, right? And uh, I go back, I get traded. I have the heart surgery. So now all of a sudden uh, I became friends with Ellen DeGeneres and I got to perform on her show all the time. Well, now I have my heart surgery and now it's the first time it was six weeks after my heart surgery. And it was the first thing I've, I did publicly. I, I did an interview on Ellen about that process. Well, I look across and in the green room across from me is a, is a singer named Garth Brooks. And now Garth Brooks and I became friends back in 2003 and 2004 through his foundation called Teammates for Kids. And he is the most amazing man in the world. And so him and I have a conversation and this blew my mind, man. He goes, hey, when we first met, you love that song, Unanswered Prayers, don't you? I go, I love it, man. So we did a toast with, uh, with water because I was you know on a bunch of pills. And he goes, hey, he goes, I heard about your, your run in with NBC and you didn't get the gig to host America's Got Talent. And that was your dream job. But you know what? Sometimes what we really, really think we want, it ain't what we need. Yeah. So, so, so cheers to unanswered prayers. Right. And so to have Garth Brooks quote his own song to a situation in my life was just like mind blown. Right. But think about just that, that sometimes when things don't really go our way, we have such a tantrum and, and a lot of people allow themselves to go in such a deep and dark place. But hey, maybe there's something better for you. Mm. Maybe though you think that job or you think that opportunity or you think this is the end all be all. And when you come up just shy or somebody just takes it right from underneath you, how do you know that there's not something way better that's just waiting for you? And that just wasn't, that, that right there just wasn't even close to your potential, even though you thought it was. Mm. And for me, it was literally the difference of living or dying. Had I got the job for AGT, I quit football. I never had my physical and I probably died a year and a half ago. Boom. Mind blown. That's exactly. Perception, man. 
that's exactly how I see life now. Like you don't know in the moment, like in the moment that things happen to you, if it's bad, automatically we go to the worst possible mindset ever. And then when you come out of it and you look back on it, it's like hindsight is always bliss, right? It's always, you look at it. If I was to look at all the things that I've been through in my life, I think, well, I wanted my life to be this way. And I worked as hard as I possibly could to have all the things that I ever wanted in life, but it wasn't what I needed. And what I really needed was to go through all this, this pain. Like I was, I was on this direction, but I believe God wanted me here and I was running away, but always God would steer me back to where he, he needed me to go. And it was an amazing thing. I always uh, questioned about purpose and, and, and God's purpose for my life and, and you know, like being in, in the center of his will and, and so to speak. And I spoke to someone who's kind of like a mentor in my life and he said to me, Jay, you need to understand that you're never not in God's will for your life. He always knows what is best for you. You don't know what is best for you. And you just got to trust and understand that your life is guided by a higher power than you. And even though it is hard for you to actually trust, have a little bit of faith, just the faith of a mustard seed, that's all it takes to say that your life is worth more. It is on, you know, it's on a better path than what you think it is and watch God do absolute wonders and miracles in your life. And I'm a living testament of that and I believe well, you've shared, John, you are a living testament of that. And I, I don't even know what you believe, but. So, yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, yeah, I'm, I'm fine going into this. So uh, I, I believe in God. I do. Um, there's things about, you know, not, not to get too far into it, but there's things I think about the Christian religion or the Catholic religion. There might be one or two things that I kind of disagree with, mm. but I, I, I believe in God. I would say that my wife and I are both very spiritual more than, if, if there's a spectrum of being spiritual, believing in God and being hardcore religious and believing in God, I would say that we're spiritual and we believe in God mm. and with, with definitely a very heavy Christian basis and foundation. Um, but what that's allowed me to do is kind of, it, it's allowed me to see other religions and, you know, I think it might be ignorant to be like, well, we're right and you're wrong. Because they're thinking the same thing. Wait, we're right. You're wrong. Mm. So who's right and who's wrong? But at the end of the day, if what you believe in makes you a better person, then amen. Mm. Because that's really what this world should be about. And then whatever you want your afterlife to be, I hope that's what it is. Mm. I really do. Because these people aren't telling me what to do and what to think. Who am I to do the same to them? Or, Or I'm sorry, who am I? to tell them what to think and to believe, right? That, that's our own choice. So um, we're spiritual with, with a, a very Christian foundation and, and I, I believe in it all. And, um, but, but if you think about it too, what you just said, right? And, and this is what I tell, you know, if, if you ever have like a, a, a conversation with atheists or people that just say they just, they, they, they think you and I are just crazy. It doesn't make any sense. It's out, right? Mm. But the reality is, Let's, let's take it. And again, people are going to be like, Oh my gosh, John, you're, this is terrible, but we're going to, we're going to step outside of our own beliefs. We're going to step outside of religion. Okay. Mm -hmm. And what we're going to do is we're going to be just a a face and a voice 
looking at looking out looking from the outside in if nothing is real none of the stories are real there is no god none of it is real but it's a story that you believe in that makes your reality bearable enjoyable and positive then man so be it right i mean think of it now i i believe in it and you believe in it right but there's people out there that might be listening that are like yeah i, I don't believe in it but it's like what we talked about whether it's the necklace whether it's the wind beneath my wings whether it's catching a breeze it's changing the narrative in your own mind to find joy peace and laughter in the worst situations and finding motivation and defeat if we can do that what a powerful thing and so for Mm. A lot of a lot of us, religion, spirituality, God is a story that we believe in because what it does is it gives us purpose, it gives us hope. It makes us think that there's something better out there for us. I, I hope that came across the right way. It did because we, we, we definitely have spiritual beliefs and religious beliefs. Um, but believing in something is a good thing. Mm. It, it's a great thing. <clears throat> mm. I totally agree with you. And, and regarding the religion aspect, I don't see myself in a religion. I see myself in a relationship. And oh, there it is, man. Amen. The, the part of it that I think a lot of Christians get wrong is they do become religious. And the part, the religious aspect of you got to follow rules, set regulations, guidelines, all that sort of stuff. And then if you don't follow it, then you're not really, uh, religious, so to speak, it is, but I, I don't see it. Like I grew up in, in a Christian home, Christian family, where I was very conservative, very, you know, set. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing at all because I wouldn't be here today if, if that wasn't it, but I didn't question anything. I was just spoon fed all the information for my entire life. It was like, you need to believe this because we tell you to believe it. I didn't actually search it out for myself until I was much older. And what I realized was, it's not our job. We don't do the saving. We don't do any of that. It's not our job to force anything down anyone's throat. The most impacting thing that we can do is share a story because the best story ever told was Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. That is the greatest story. And you're right with that story aspect. If, it, if you believe it to be true, fantastic. It is not any of our business, if you don't believe it or not, you have that choice. That's what God gave us free will to mm -hmm. choose. And if you make the choice not to, so be it. I'm not going to judge you. All I'm going to do is use my life as a living Testament example and hopefully point you to the truth that I believe in and that God said, and like, that's, that's, I love how you, you, you said that, man, it made total sense to me. Amen to that. So here's a question for you. If you could change one thing about your life, what would it be? If you can go back and change something. Mm -hmm. It's hard because the hard part is, is you, you're really happy with where you're at now. Yeah. And, and every struggle that you had, see, see, here's what happens when people go through extreme struggle when people go through really difficult times, but they get through it and they get past it and they overcome it and they build resiliency and character they probably wouldn't change it because they've done the work. Mm. People that live in depression, people that live in bitterness, they would probably change a million things because they haven't really done the work and they, and they're, and they're not happy with where they're at in the moment. Mm. 
So it's uh it's kind of that that double edged sword right there. So I think the one thing that I would actually change is the one thing my biggest regret in life actually is my grandfather he suffered a stroke when I was eleven and he was in hospital. Uh, I remember after he came out of the hospital, we we had I think it was close to seven eight months with him in the nursing home. He was he was a proud man. He became a Christian basically towards the end of his life. And, and his, his regret was that he didn't become a Christian sooner. But each time I went to the nursing home, I hated it because I saw my grandy for a human being. I idolized my grandy. He was like my mentor. My He taught me a lot of things in life that I still hold dear and I'm able to teach other people. But all I would do is seeing him, it broke me. And I didn't actually want to have a conversation with him. I just sat there on my stupid Nintendo DS and zoned out. And I would say hi to him. I'd say, I hope you're doing okay. My biggest regret is actually not sitting down with him and picking his brain because it's still super sharp. But all I did and all I cared about was zoning out. And that's my biggest. Yeah, but, yeah, but you said you were 11. Mm. So I told you. I, when knew, I, was I knew what I was doing though. Yeah, but like when, when I was 12, I told you about that time in my life during the trial and all that. You just zone out. Mm. You know, I mean, I, I, I look, um, I think that's, that's a pretty normal thing for a kid that's just learning what life is all about because you and I were both at an age where, and now think about this. No, well, actually, <laughs> you're a lot younger than I am. But when I grew up, I didn't have the internet. I didn't have a cell phone. I didn't have, you know what I didn't have? Instant access to whatever information I needed in the moment. I didn't have that. And so I think what happened is kids that were in my generation, we were a little bit slower to learning about life because we weren't exposed to it through the internet in mm-hmm. all aspects, right? Whether it's war and violence, whether it's porn, whether it doesn't matter. Like kids have so much access now, right? That when I was 12, I, I mean, the idea of murder, I, I never heard of it. I didn't even know what it was. I didn't know it was real, you know? And, and so, um, you zone out because you're, you know, I'm assuming that dealing with your grandpa was that like the first traumatic kind of dwindling death experience where you saw somebody just kind of just slowly go down. For a human being. Yes. But yeah. <clears throat> a couple of years earlier, we actually lost our German shepherd that tragically passed. And I, I just remember, I think I was eight, eight or nine. I can't remember how old I was, but it was just that moment of being faced with the reality of not having someone in your life anymore, the one you love. And I would, I think, I believe God put that there to sort of give me a taste of what was to come and right. say, look, this is part of life. I want you to grow and understand certain things that it's okay. Like they, you may never see them again, on, on earth, but I know for my grandy that I'll, I'll see him again one day and I'm looking forward yeah. to that. And all the things that I remember, like one of the biggest sayings that he told me that I've lived by every single day was don't put off for tomorrow what can be done today. And he said that to me when 
all I wanted to do was sit at his place, drink pub squash and watch Cartoon Network. That's all I wanted to do. We're in his workshop and he gives me, like he was trying to teach me something. And I said, why can't we do this tomorrow? And that instant, the moment I said that, he just threw this saying at me and it hit me so hard that I've lived by it and people have asked me, even in school, why do you get your assignments done well in advance? Why don't you procrastinate? Because I don't believe in it. I don't, if you procrastinate, you're lazy. If you tell yourself that you have more time tomorrow, how do you know you've got more time tomorrow? You don't. So if you've got the time today, make sure that you do it today and do it to the best of your ability. Because another thing my, my granny told me was excellence. He said, if you do a job, do it well. Don't do it half-hearted. Don't go in there half-cocked. If you, if you do a job, you do it to the best of your ability. And at the end of the day, if, you, if you've given everything, you've, if you've given your all, your best shot, you can sit back and you can know, I gave it all. I left it all mm-hmm. there. And that's feeling of, of satisfaction. He said, that's all you need. He said, but if you don't and you question that I could have given more, then that's a problem. Yeah. All right. I'm a, I, I got a question for you, but your editor is going to edit this out because I'm going to find a picture real quick. Give me, give me two seconds. This is going to be worth it. And then I got a question for you. Um, you know, I was going to ask you, so uh, when... Uh, so there was a situation where uh, I needed to, to go grab a windbreaker for my grandpa. And so I went in and my grandpa is like one of my favorite people in the world, just like you were talking about yours. And so I opened the closet to grab my grandpa's windbreaker and there's six hats up on his top shelf. And I looked at it and I went, what? Now I'm alone in this room. So I take him down. It was one hat from Pacifica High School when I was playing football. He wore the same hat for four years. Then I went to Golden West Junior College and it was the Golden West Junior College football hat. And then I went to UTEP and there's one UTEP hat. And then I signed with Buffalo and there was this Buffalo Bills hat. And then I went to Tennessee and then I went to Philadelphia. And so every time I played for a team, he would get the one hat and he wore that hat the entire time I played for that team. Wow. And so I, I told my family, I go, I don't want anything. I don't want money. I, I don't want anything. But when it's all said and done and they've, they've moved on, I just want these six hats. Mm-hmm. That's all I want. A friend of mine is a, is a big time uh, producer. And uh, when you go into his house, he's got a doorbell on his office door. And it's like between you and I, it's kind of an annoying doorbell and it's inside his house. Right. It's like, this doesn't make sense. And then, I, and then he goes, you know what? I would look so forward to go and visiting my grandparents. And this was their doorbell. And I told them that when it's all said and done, I don't want anything. I just want the doorbell because I just remember as a kid ringing this doorbell and just the anticipation of the door opening and seeing my grandparents, like that feeling of when I heard that this bell, it was the greatest feeling in the world. And so when it was all said and done, before they sold the house, he went in and they had somebody remove this old school doorbell and he installed it inside his house in his office. And so he can push it every day and hear that sound that just brought him joy. So it's, uh, yeah, it's kind of, it's, yeah, just one of those moments to reflect, right? Oh, absolutely, man. Like so many, so many great moments. Like if I was to think back, like my grandfather used to take me to art classes and mm-hmm. I used to hate art classes, man. Like I was like the rebel. I'd be like, why, why do I need to go to art classes when all I want to do is create things myself 
and be left alone to create them. And I don't want someone going over my shoulder telling me what I need to, to draw and how to do it. But he used to sit there for an hour and he used to watch me. He used to watch me do it. Wow. And on the drive home, which is about an hour, hour drive home, we used to stop at the same same place. Every time I drive past him, man, those, those memories just come, come flooding mm. back. And this is back when, you know, Magnum ice creams were like a dollar or less than that. And he always used to have pocket change in his car. And he would go into the petrol station, stop, and he's like, go and get yourself three things, an ice cream, a drink, and a lolly. So I used to go in there. He used to get a, a Magnum ice cream, a Coke or a Fanta, and those massive python snakes, which you get for like 20, 20 cents back then. Come out and we used to sit in the car for 10 minutes and just talk. And he used to ask me, he's like, so how was art classes today? Did you enjoy it? I said, no, Grandy, I hated it. He's like, why did you hate it? <laughs> I said, because I, I just want to do what I want to do. He said, Jay, listen to me. The reason why you go to art classes is so you can learn how to be better. Mm. You may think that you're better now, but you're not. <laughs> and I was just like, I'm, I was young, man. I was like nine, nine years old, 10 years old. And I was like, Granny, leave me alone. I'm just going to want to enjoy my, my, my treats right now. <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't. Yeah, really- but- but yeah. what blows my mind of, of what you're saying is I have a daughter now. Mm. And, and think about this. Think about all the things that your, your grandpa or whoever did for you that we don't even remember. But then those moments right there, how much they affected us as adults. Mm. Right? So, so your grandpa wasn't talking. So what were you, 11 at the time? Yeah, how right. Yeah. All right. Your grandpa wasn't talking to you at 11. Your grandpa was talking to you in your 20s. You just didn't know it. Mm. Like that idea just. Mm. Mind blown um, once again. <laughs> yeah. So now you're still recording, right? I am. Yes. All right. So here's the deal. Um, this is actually the picture. So if you use this to lay over top of what we previously did, uh, this was a picture of me actually going to baseball camp. And I actually think that's the last time I ever went to the camp. Um, it's the only picture I really have from that camp and the Harpers would pick me up. But when my dad sent me off to baseball camp, he turned himself in shortly after this. Um, this is my, uh, I know we talked about the wedding. So that's Tim in the background. He married us. That's the guy that introduced us. And that's my wife and I, so I'll just give you a, okay. This was our first date, right? When we called Tim. So if you, uh, in the part of the story where we're talking about Tim, uh, this was mine and my wife's first date. When we said, hey, let's just go down on the beach and let's just laugh and talk and a crappy boat ride. We ended up taking a, a ride on beach cruise and hung out. That's my mom in the library that she volunteered and started the uh, um, the reading program. And uh-huh. so when we talk about that story, that's the actual picture of her in the library. Um, this is just more wedding stuff, which uh, that one's kind of small. I think I showed it in the actual um, when we were talking about it. Um, this is just these freaking dudes are enormous. So that's me playing. Uh, I don't know if there was a time we talked about my family or not, but that's my grandparents, my mom's parents. That's Mm -hmm. my aunt that, that raised me. And then my wife on Elise. And so that was after a game in Philly. 
this is after the five and a half hour lunch with my dad. And um, my wife looks at this picture and she goes, man, this picture creeps me out. I'm like, why? She goes, that's the only picture I've ever seen you take where you're not smiling. Mm. And I, you know, uh, it's just one of those times where you just are like, wow. And, and in that moment, I just remember thinking, dude, what just happened? Like, holy shit. Um, oh, is that it on that reel? Um, yeah, I thought there was more. Um, I guess not. But if you want to use those over the top of whatever, I just thought I'd give you something there. Mm. I think that, yeah, that those are the ones that I had found. Uh, and if I find the picture of the six hats, I'm going to send they, it to you. They send it uh, to it's, me. Yeah. So anyways, and then now, okay. So, uh, where, um, we'll go back into where we were. So, all right. So if you could have anything of your grandparents when it's all said and done, or, uh, is your grandma still around? No, no. So they, they both, okay. uh, it's basically, uh, the, my family is not big at all. It's just my uncle has left. And um, my two brothers, mom and dad, and our dog. So we got no cousins, or it's not a big family at all. So, so did, was there any one thing of your grandpa's that you wanted to keep just for momentum, or no? It's a great question. Or, or that you wish you had kept. His work best. Oh wow. Uh, there you go. Yeah. I think his workbench was where I used to walk past it every single time I was over there. But that's where he taught me one of life's greatest lessons. All right. So this is deep right here, man. I, this is what I, this is my observation in life. When you talk to people, who happiness is success. Mm. They never want the money. But instead, that workbench and my grandpa's six hats, that's what motivates me and will make me more money than I could have ever inherited. Mm. That workbench is what dictates who you are. It's the memory that you have. That right there is what inspires you to be better which ultimately inspires you to do better in this world, which ultimately is going to inspire you to probably make more money than your grandparents were worth. But it's amazing. My buddy's a, a rock star, right? And when his grandparents died, all he wanted was his rocking chair. And his company's called Rocking Chair Entertainment. And he has a song called Rocking Chair that I would listen to every time I pulled up to a stadium for an away game. And, and I never knew what it was about. I just, yeah, I loved it. And he goes, no, man, my grandpa would rock in that chair. And I just remember that when it was all said and done, it was my time to rock on. And so when he was, when he passed, I took that chair and I would sit and I would rock in it. And the gist of the song is just keep my rocking chair, just keep it right there. But when it's all said and done and the audience and the lights go down and the audience starts to leave, may you take my rocking chair, will you rock it right there? And will you continue to rock on? Damn. It's, it's passing down legacy. It's passing down life lessons. It's your father's work or your granddad's workbench. It's, you know, the six hats, it's the rocking chair. It's just cool that, that that's what you said, because if you think about it, that workbench was probably the least expensive thing in the guy's life. You know what I mean? It's not the house, it's not the cars, it's not the, Mm. but it's priceless, man. Mm. It's priceless. It's cool. Really cool. I love that question, man. I guess, because I haven't actually really thought about that before. Yeah. 
And it makes total sense now. It, I, I, I never thought about it until I saw the six hats. Mm-hmm. And I remember looking around going, I don't want anything. All I want are these six hats. That's all I want. I'm going to ask you, because I'm writing a book at the moment called The Path of an Eagle. And I'm going to request that mm-hmm. I use that analogy in my book. Absolutely. You can use whatever you want. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I dude. That's powerful. Yeah, absolutely. It's super powerful, you know? Wow. That's yeah, really <laughs> cool. I've loved this conversation, man. Like I've got probably, we're going to do a part three because I haven't asked you about <laughs> your. Um, yeah, let's go. I, I, if you got time, I got time. Okay. So um, have you got 30 minutes? Yeah. If it takes 30 minutes, we'll see. Yeah. But magic. So you've written a book called Life is Magic. And what I'm curious about is where did the magic begin? Yeah. So uh, it's, uh, it's one of those things, right? Football and magic. People are like, what? This blows my mind. Like you don't see a football playing magician. Um, so when I lost my mom and my dad, um, I lived with my temporary foster home and I saw a magician named Michael Gross. He was 16 years old and it just blew my mind. It was the first time I ever, I ever saw a magic trick. And so he's like, Hey, I'll buy you a book and here's a coin. And he taught me how to do this. Thing. Now I'm 12, 13 years old. I then moved down to Southern California and I moved in with my aunt and I realized that magic for me, I didn't realize it at the time. Right. But now looking back. Magic was for me that if I sat down at a table and I shuffled, it was the only time the world stopped, mm. right? I had all these adult issues. I had to grow up dealing with my dad, going to prison, losing my mom, uh, going through therapy, going to school and elementary school, feeling like I had a sign on me that said, hey, my dad killed my mom. I'm the only one here seeing a shrink, like all the embarrassment, all these things. But when I sat down and shuffled cards, I was just a kid. The entire outside world quieted. And then little did I know that when I was shuffling cards, I was actually building a relationship with a part of myself. And now there's 52 uh, cards in a deck. So now these became my 52 buddies. And little did I realize that they always told me when I was wrong and they always told me where to go. Meaning anytime I sit down and I have a decision in life, I sit down and I shuffle. And just that sound, man, it's just beautiful, right? It might be five minutes, 10 minutes. It could be all night. But usually when I stand up from the table, I know where I want to be. I know where I want to go and I know the decision that needs to be made. Mm-hmm. It's my outlet. It's my escape. And when I first got into magic, I didn't really get into it to do tricks for people. Like I didn't really, you know, if I would learn a trick, it wasn't like I was dying to go perform the trick before I was good because I just wanted to perform. I just wanted to be good. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, I love the idea of something being very, very difficult. And um, let me see if I have just a, these are new. So of course he's my, Actually, these are red. These will probably show up. Um, and I love the idea of just doing things like this over and over and over again. Like literally just taking a card, right? And it doesn't matter what it is. Shooting the card out from the middle, getting it to come out of the center and catching it one-handed. Like I could just do that all day over and over and over. And the idea that I didn't even realize that I was teaching myself is it doesn't matter how difficult something is, but if you just keep working on it, you're going to get it. Not only are you going to get it, but you're going to be really good at it. And then all of a sudden, the thing that was very difficult becomes easy, yeah. right? And it, it and it teaches you, uh, you know, the life lessons that I learned in sports and in magic, um, overcoming adversity, teamwork, accountability, your standard, um, the idea of process, determination, overcoming, all these things are, are you know, through, <laughs> dude, so here's what happened my freshman year. 
guy, uh, I had never played football before. I was in high school and a buddy of mine comes up to me and goes, Hey John, uh, you should play football. And I'm like, no way, dude, football's for dorks. I like magic. <laughs> so he's like, awesome. Look, the magic's cute, but you can hit that guy and not get in trouble. And I literally remember going, holy shit, that sounds awesome. Like I can just hit you and I don't get in trouble. Mm. Oh, I'm in. So sure enough, I put pads on and you know, it, it, there's like a freshman team and there's a junior varsity team and then varsity, which I don't know how it is in Australia, but varsity is like big time, right? Uh, by the end of my freshman year, I was the only freshman I think in the history of Pacific high school to start on the varsity team. And I just love to hit. And so I was super fortunate that at a time where I was, I moved down to Southern California with my aunt that now I had two outlets during the day I could hit you and not get in trouble. So there's all the aggression. But then at night I would go home and I'd light a candle. I'd sit in my room that I shared with my sister and I would just shuffle cards in the corner by myself and the whole world just quieted. So at an age where you're so just, uh, influenced and and just a lot going on. I just felt like I was so thankful to get my aggression out during the day and then find my soul at night. Mm. And that's how the two kind of came together. And then I got really good. <laughs> that's like me with reading. Like I used to be bullied a lot in school, in primary school. So in order for me to like cancel all the noise out, I used to go and find a good book somewhere and just read and absorb information that was like my escape or I'd write, mm -hmm. I'd make movies and um, just write scripts. That was like my escape. I'm, I'm curious, John, for you and with magic and the persistent aspect of it. And I have a saying as well that be persistent to remain consistent are the things mm -hmm. that you love or want the most in your life. Is it, how hard is it to actually learn all these tricks? Like, give me a, a time frame. Like, hard, mm. really, really hard. Now, now, I said this earlier. I kind of had a, I had a real problem learning when it comes to reading comprehension. Now, I'm left-handed, and all the magic books back in the day were written for right-handed people, which means every time I. So, keep in mind, I, I, my reading comprehension is already bad. Now, I'm reading complex book that says. Take your right hand over the top, extend, uh, you know, right pinky, uh, bend thumb 13 degrees, rotate counterclockwise over, turn wrist over, extend this finger, extend left finger, hold this, do that. But now every time I saw left and right, I had to flip them in my mind because I was left-handed. Mm. And so um, it was beyond difficult. Um, it's one, it's beyond difficult to learn, right? It's beyond difficult to get good. But now all of a sudden when you're, in front of a crowd and you can't mess up the, the, the level of pressure is entirely different. Um, but that process I thoroughly enjoy. Uh, I'm a long snapper. And so I, I'm going to show you guys this. Let me close it out. Um, all right, let me open this up real quick because this is actually so relevant to what we're talking about work. It's in the production keynotes. Let's go to the 60 minute right there. Okay. This is great. So um, I don't know if I did, did. Did I already explain what a long snapper was? No. Either way. Okay. So so here's the similarity between football and long snapping. I'm a long snapper, which means uh, I'm actually this guy right here. So that would be me in a game. Uh, and I only played, I would play, I would play like 10 plays a game, right? So I was a specialist, which means uh, when it was fourth down, it was time to give the ball to the other team. I would go out there. And what my job was is I had to snap a football between my legs and hit that guy right in the thigh. Now that might not look that hard, but he's 45 feet away, 15 yards. 
So now all of a sudden you put somebody, well, so, and, and here's what it would look like. So if I did it, I would look between my legs, I would snap a ball, he would catch it and kick it and all's good right there. That, that was my job. That was actually my full-time job. Wow. Now what made that hard is that now there'd be a guy across from you lined up whose his job was to run you over. I would snap it. His job would be to run me over and try and block the kick. So not only did I have to snap it and hit the guy perfectly over, go outside 45 feet, 15 yards is, is a long way. Now you got a guy that's trying to run you over. Oh, by the way, it's three degrees out. It's raining and there's a 40 mile an hour side wind and you can't miss. And so that was my job. And now what that would look like when that guy would try and run me over, it would look like this. So there's him and I. And as soon as I snapped the ball, he would try and run me over and I would have to hold him off and defend it. Now, look, that's all gravy, right? That's all fine and dandy. But this is what I love about the game. And people ask me all the time, oh, did you ever get knocked out? Did you ever get like hit really hard? Yeah. Yeah. So right here, that's my backside. And there's a guy with a black jersey and a gold helmet across from me. Sometimes this happens. You snap a ball. And you literally just get your ass completely ran over, oh. right? Exactly, exactly, right. Now I didn't. I don't find that funny. I didn't find it funny then. It's funny now. But here's here's what kind of when somebody asked me this question in an interview and they said, "Hey, have you ever been ran over?" And I said this. I said, "Hell yeah, I've been ran over." And you know it was awesome because if you play long enough, you're going to get ran over. Mm. You know, if you ask a football player if he's never had his ass kicked, then guess what? He didn't have a chance to play the game very long. Mm. But that's life, right? This right here is life. It's getting ran over and it's constantly getting back up. So yeah, if you live long enough, you're going to get ran over, mm-hmm. but you know what? You're going to get back up and you're going to be the last man standing or the last woman standing. You're going to be the oldest guy in the team, but it's not about whether you get ran over. It's about whether you're willing to stand back up, get back in the game and, and being vulnerable enough to potentially get ran over again and just constantly find ways to not get ran over. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's life. The eagle mentality. That's it, man. That's I it. love it. That's it. I really enjoy this conversation. My last question for you is more of a fun one. And we've, we've hit some pretty heavy stuff. So I've got to do a fun one at the cool. end. Actually, I'll do two fun ones. So this one, because uh, I'm a filmmaker, I'm a film nerd as well. So I usually ask people, what is your favorite film, your favorite actor, mm. and the last movie that you watched? Wow. Last movie I just watched was, um, ironically, we watched it last night. Uh, it was with Brad Pitt. Uh, it was called Read After Burn. Burn After Reading? Yeah. Is that, is it, what is it? Burn yeah. After Reading? Burn After Reading. Yeah. We just watched that last night. It was hysterical. We'd watched it before we told my mother-in-law about it. So we watched it. Um, man, favorite movie. There's so many. So, uh, there's a guy named Mike Tolan. He just did a documentary on the Chicago Bulls uh, called The Last Dance. Uh, uh-huh. He did a movie called Radio. He did a movie called Co- Co- Coach Carter. So mm-hmm. 15 years ago, he talked about doing a movie on my life. And I was like, Mike, a buddy of mine at the time was an actor named Riley Smith, who was doing radio and, and said, John, if there's ever somebody to do your movie, it should be Mike Tolan. We become friends. Mike picks it up. And so Mike Tolan is, is doing... Uh, you know, I guess he uh, he picked up the the, the rights to, to Life is Magic. He's a friend of mine. Um, and he asked me, John, what's your favorite movie of all time? And still to this day, he's like embarrassed to even admit this. But like Three Amigos is to <laughs> me, like, exactly. You're laughing. You're laughing right now. But like Three Amigos goes down on so many different layers as one of the greatest movies, the movie Major League. And, and here's why. Because I loved these movies as a kid and I would laugh at jokes that I didn't really understand until I got older. 
Yeah. You know, it's a funny movie. And, and for me too, Three Amigos, it, it represents a time of my life where my parents were together, where I would play wiffle ball in the front yard and pretend like I was this guy right here. Right. I would, I would sit there and pretend like I was King Griffey Jr. And, uh, you know, it, it just represents a time. Um, but uh, John Gatons is super interested in, in, in writing my movie. And um, he, did, he did the movie Flight and a bunch of other things. And so he asked me, what movie intrigues you? What movie moves you? Right. There's a movie called Big Fish. Yeah, yeah. That movie, that movie blows me away every time. I mean, look, you got Gladiator, you got Braveheart. These are just classics. But the idea that this man is searching in the relationship and the idea that the father is telling this kid stories that he doesn't believe. And then all of a sudden the dad dies. And what happens? The two-headed woman shows up, the little man, the giant. And all his dad did is maybe romanticize difficult times of his life to get through it, mm. which is what we had talked about earlier, creating the narrative in your own own head and, and creating the story in your own mind that gets you through really difficult times. And so I, I related to that. I think those are, those are just great movies. Um, favorite actor. Ooh. Okay. I'm a huge fan. Um, you're probably going to just be like, really? But here's what happens is there's, there was three people I wanted to meet as a kid, right? Just growing up, I was fans of three people, uh, Garth Brooks, Jay Leno, Adam Sandler. And so what happens is Garth Brooks and I meet, we become friends. Garth Brooks introduces me to Jay Leno, which that blew my mind. Okay. That just blew my mind. I do America's Got Talent. We have success. And now Adam Sandler is doing a show in Philadelphia at the time I live in Philadelphia. They reach out and he's like, oh my gosh, my daughter's loved you on America's Got Talent. We're doing a show. Would you like to come backstage and hang? Huh? I'm sorry, what? Yeah, huh? Honey, grab your bag. Let's go get your jacket. <laughs> We're going to go hang out with Sandler. So, um, you know, I, 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 I'm I a Sandler fan. I, I am, you know, and, and I love every one of his movies. I love laughing. I just, uh, as a person, he's just such a nice guy. Um, but, you know, then there's also, I also look at overall film, right? It's, it's really hard to say that if you know, like a Leonardo DiCaprio, if you know a Wahlberg, if you know these guys are in them, a Denzel Washington, like when these people come out with movies, it's a pretty good chance they're great movies. Mm. Will Smith, like there's certain actors and, and their management and their team, right? Because it takes a team that they just make good decisions and they make good movies. Mm. And that's it. You know, I mean, look, if you were to say Aniston or Jolie, I'm going to say Jennifer Aniston all day long. You know what I mean? Um, I'd say Jolie. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it, it makes sense. You're an Aussie with dark hair. You're going to go with that. <laughs> you, you, there you go. Right. I'm surprised you didn't say, isn't Nicole Kidman an Aussie? I'm surprised you didn't say Nicole Kidman, you know? I love um, Nicole Kidman as well. And then yeah, who doesn't? To, um, Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on. Did you say Sandra Bullock? Yeah, Sandra Bullock. Oh, dude. When she was in the blind side. Okay, I'll, I'll do, uh, I'll, I'll take Sandra Bullock with, with blonde hair. Oh. Yeah, 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 yeah. 100%. All, yeah. All, all day long. All, Here's all. a... Yeah. If you just want to know kind of a, a funny story, uh, I, I go to training camp. Now I'm a long snapper. And so look, you have your quarterback and you have your receiver and you have everybody that's like, cool. They make all the money when it comes to coolness, like a long snapper was right here. Okay. So here's what happens. I'm walking off the field with the cool guy, the quarterback, it was uh, Donovan McNabb at the time. And I hear a guy far away and it was in training camp. He's like, door boss. So I kind of look over and he's like jumping up and down. He's like, come over here. And he goes like this, like autographs. So I was like, oh gosh, sorry, Donovan and all you guys, I got to go sign autographs for fans. And I got like, really excited. I, you know, I acted like it was every day, but it never happened to me. So I like grab a Sharpie, I sprint over it. It was like a hundred yards away. It's far for me to run that far is far. And I show up and I show up to this scenario right here. Okay. Now I'm going to break this picture down. Okay. 
this is what happens. This guy right here shows up at training camp. Okay. He calls my name. I get excited. And as I walk over there, as I'm approaching him, he gets, he, he like extends his legs apart from each other and he bends his front leg. Like he, if he's in like a warrior two position in yoga and he pulls up his shorts from his knee all the way up to his boys. Okay. So now I'm like, this is different, right? <laughs> as, as I approach him, this gentleman right here took this picture of me and tattooed it on the entire inside of his thigh. It was a full, full mural. So I know what you're thinking. And I'm thinking the same thing you are. This guy is awesome. Yes. This is my kind of guy, you know? So as, as even though that long snappers aren't exactly the coolest person in the world, uh, I actually have myself muraled on a, on an Eagles fan. So I, I do got that going for me, which is nice. That's all right. So, oh, all right. So, so you, you said favorite movie. I gave you a couple. You said favorite actor. I gave you a couple. Now what was your other question? It was like the last movie that you watched, but then yep. you answered that. Read after burn. Your favorite food. Oh, man. Okay. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to take that question one step further because it's not technically a food. Okay. Um, but uh, I, I got a, I got a 1972 Ford Bronco. It's got no top. It's lifted. Oh, yeah. lucky guy. It's awesome. We, we call her Kokomo. And uh, um, what I do is there's no top on it. And so for me, the ultimate getaway, my wife and I take a cruise down Pacific coast highway, right on the beach, right outside our house. Nice. And are you ready for this? It's, it's sunflower seeds. And a diet Dr. Pepper. <laughs> yeah. If if I'm driving our Bronco and 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 the tops off and then the, the, uh, the wind is in our hair, usually we play like tropical remix like Kygo. So we play like some Bob Marley. Maybe we'll throw on some Led Zeppelin or the Stones. And then it's spits, dill pickle, sunflower seeds. That's what they're called, spits. S P I T Z. They're amazing. Uh, Flavored dill pickle. It's just subtle. It's just enough. That. And a diet Dr. Pepper cruising down PCH. Don't get me better, man. Don't get me better. I feel like that's a perfect way to end a conversation, man. Just yeah. like that. Sunflower yeah. seeds, Dr. Pepper, riding off into the sunset. Uh, 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 look, I'm, I'm 40 now. Okay, I'm officially 40 years old. So it's not Dr. Pepper anymore. Too much sugar. It's diet. <laughs> diet Dr. Pepper. Dr. Pepper. Makes me feel better about myself. Makes me feel better about myself. <laughs> I love it. John, you've been an absolute legend, man. Honestly, love speaking to you. So much amazing stuff. I feel like I could talk to you for hours. Definitely got to do it again. Thank you so much for coming on the Storybox podcast. Really do Thank you. That, you're, you're doing great stuff, man. I don't like this part because it means that sadly, we have come to an end of yet another incredible story. I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guest today. It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, motivated, challenged in some way, and that you would have learned something new as well. If you'd like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the story box on any podcast platform. It's that easy. If you did get something from our guest today, please share it around to a friend or family member that you think could benefit from hearing this powerful story. And before you go, Please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It will only take 30 seconds and it will go towards reaching more people. Let's start changing lives through powerful stories like this one. Your support is greatly appreciated. Until next time, when we dive back into the story box, I'm Jay Phantom, and don't forget, your story 
is worth more than you know. I'll catch you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.